for the next four items. Agenda item one is apologies. We have apologies from Robbie Butler and William Humphrey. Uh, any other apologies, Clark? No, okay, thank you. Agenda item two is chairperson's business. Can I refer members to a record of an informal meeting with the Northern Ireland Public Service Ombudsman at page five and ask members if they are content to note. Agreed? Agreed. Agreed, members. Thank you. Okay, members. Can I also refer you to the Minister's statement on a fair start? the final report and action plan from the expert panel on educational underachievement in tabled items. The committee has scheduled a hearing on the 7th of July from the panel. Would members also wish to invite the minister on this matter as well? Yeah, that would probably be useful, Chair. Yep, okay. Um, we'll agree to do that. Uh, members, I, I, I raised a point of order in the Assembly yesterday in relation to this. Um, it seems fairly clear that the Department and or Minister issued a copy of this final report and action plan to the media in advance of any MLAs or the Education Committee. Um, with the, the, the Speaker um, noted his... Uh, concern and, and disappointment in relation to that uh, and, and said that he has, has issued warnings against such practice previously. I'm not aware of any consequence or remedy in relation to that, but the, the result is that MLAs have significantly less time to engage with the report and action plan in an, in an informed way. Um, and then they had to ask informed questions when the minister is given a statement. Um, do, do members wish to write to the, the minister in the department to express our concern in relation to that practice and, and ask that um, either the media and ourselves are given advanced embargoed uh, copies yeah. of any such reports or, or no one is at all? Yeah. Members? Yeah, I, I agree with your, your point, Chair. Um, I, I had the dentist just to say I wasn't physically in the Assembly, but I was remotely, and the only advantage that I had was that I wasn't driving, so I had time to consider uh, uh, slightly. Um, but uh, for others that would have been travelling, it would have been extremely difficult. This is not something new. It's absolutely typical of the Department. Uh, I think it's completely bad manners uh, on, on their part and disrespectful to this committee, who have worked and engaged uh, with the panel uh, a very, very good panel. I have to put on record here uh, um, uh, to get uh, the, the, this uh, focus report uh, to where it is. So I, I think, I think it is very disappointing, and I think that something should be done uh, about this. Otherwise, we're just going to have a repeat of, of these events in future, and something much more serious as well. Okay. Uh, Could I come in there, Chair, as well? Yes, Pat. Eighty-nine pages. Just to put that on record. Sorry, Pat. Eighty-nine pages. Doesn't take five minutes to read the pages either. And yeah, that, and that was and Daniel. That, that was that was just the actual report. The the report had A to G annexes. Uh, so bring in Pat. Yeah, I agree with what Daniel has just said, and it is very disrespectful to be providing the media with copies of a report like this, and not to give it to ourselves at least as well. Uh, 
Um, I mean, I can't see what advantage there is to providing it to the media beforehand and not, not giving it to members of the Education Committee as well. Uh, I mean, at least show a, a small amount of respect, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's out of order, just it's, it's bad practice, full stop. Thanks. Agreed. Okay, members content for the, the clerk to write to the minister in the department in that regard. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you, members. Okay, members, agenda item 2.3 then is press coverage of committee evidence hearings on the GTCNI. Can I refer members to press coverage of the committee briefing? with the Chair, Vice-Chair and Chief Executive of GTC and I last week in table papers and ask members their content to note. Agreed? Agreed. Thank you. Okay, members, can I also refer your attention to the Integrated Education Bill as introduced? Uh, it's tabled with us today. It, it's convention that a private member's bill, in this case from Kelly Armstrong, MLA, should have a month between introduction and second stage, four weeks, month, four weeks to a month, and second stage to allow members time to read in and engage with the member in charge. If the bill's second stage takes place this month, the bill will come directly to this committee for scrutiny. Um, would, Clark, would it be... Um, in line for the committee to perhaps seek a, a meeting, a briefing with the bill clerk to um, update us in terms of bill procedures uh, and perhaps to invite the member in charge to brief the committee as well. Is the clerk there? Clark might have dropped off. Members, are you were con content to invite the, the bill uh, clerk to update us in relation to bill procedures and the uh, the member in charge in due course? Yeah, agreed? Agreed. Okay, thank you. Okay, members, uh, agenda item three is draft member minutes. Can I refer members to the draft minutes of committee meeting on 19th of May 2021 at page eight of your meeting packs? and seek your agreement that the minutes are a complete and accurate record of proceedings. Agreed? Agreed. Well, thank you. There are no matters arising, members. And that takes us on to agenda item five, our uh, oral briefing from uh, Colleen Aguil Scaliocta. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove all members from the spotlight and to add our witnesses? Can I refer members to a briefing paper from Corleone Aguil Scaliocta at page 17 and DE responses on GTCNI at pages 83 and 86. Can I give a, a warm welcome uh, to Kieran McGillivan, the CEO, and uh, Tarlac McGillivan-Vera, the Senior Education Officer. Can I advise witnesses that the committee will give you up to 10 minutes to make your opening statement and then be glad to facilitate questions for uh, from members. You're, you're very welcome. Chris, and, and, and thank you very much to the committee for affording us this opportunity to present to you today and also 
to the clerks uh, and others associated for, for all their help and, and, and getting us here. So um, just to cut straight to the test, Cordina Gilles Collect, as you are aware, we, we've submitted the, the paper, position paper, and shared that with you. As we were established in 2000 to support facilitate and encourage um, Irish medium education in Irish medium schools and to do so in a planned uh, and efficient, educationally efficient way. Um, we also, all of that was underpinned by the statutory duty um, to encourage it and facilitate the development of Irish medium education, which came about as a result of the Good Friday uh, Belfast Agreement. Um, and what we found and what we um, would like to touch on today is and that it is in our over 20 years experience, if you like, that since that, that you know, in many instances, we don't see the statutory duty being um, facilitated and uh, legislated for in the way which it should. And the, this has led to frustrations within the sector and which also leads to a sense of invisibility amongst IM staff and pupils. So we, we're going to cover areas from area planning, SEN, resourcing, teacher provision, and others. Um, and there's been, it's worth pointing out as well. Sure that, that since um, the statutory duty was ratified, that there have been a number of legal rulings which have also, in the High Court, was also highlighted some of these feelings and effort clarification as to how the statutory duty um, should be implemented. I just want to say also, as part of the opening remarks, that um, we, we often, and we'll be here today about some of the issues we have, but it's worth pointing out that Irish medium education is the fastest growing sector. It delivers huge benefits. Um, to the young people, to the upwards of over 7,000 young people that are being educated through, through Irish. Um, and it's internationally recognised, the immersive model of education is internationally recognised for the additional cognitive and emotional benefits that it brings young people that go through that. And, and the Irish medium education is no different in that regard. Um, so we have a, a huge um, growth in Irish medium education, in spite of the fact that we still represent a very small um, sector in terms of percentage um, terms, we are also the fastest growing sector within that. One of the other kind of misnomers around the sector uh, is that it is just that, that the people view it through the prism sector. So we have the CCMS, the control, the Irish medium integrated, whatever. Unlike those other sectors, if you like, Irish medium education straddles right across the educational landscape. So we have various medium schools that are controlled, that are CCMS. And it's also important to, to point out that in September of this year, we'll also have the very first Irish medium integrated nursery opening up in East Belfast as well, which demonstrates the, you know, the continued appeal and interest in Irish medium education. Um, and you have information there around the, the trajectory and, and where those growths are going. So we have seen uh, huge growth and that growth is expected to continue based on enrollment figures and enrollment, enrollment trends that we've, that we've measured. Further information can, uh, on this can be provided. Coyne and Gills Collective have developed a very comprehensive uh, sectoral plan which goes into great detail in terms of um, area by area and where these enrollment trends are expected to go so just in terms of some of the key issues around the, the sector um, among the key, key issues is around area accommodation and area planning so as i said our sector is, is, is growing at an exponential rate therefore the likelihood is that if a new school is formed or has been formed in the last 20 or 30 years the likelihood is that that is an irish medium school and what that means is that 60 percent of accommodation in the Irish medium other maintained sector comprises non-permanent buildings. Outside of Belfast, we only currently have one Irish medium school that is located within a purpose-built building. And we have other areas 
which have been in our view hugely neglected in terms of infrastructure. In Derry City, for example, we have three Irish medium primary schools that are all located in temporary unsuitable uh, accommodation, despite increasing enrolment in all three settings. So what we recommend um, is that a bespoke and strategic approach is required um, for area planning and Irish medium education. And that this it needs to be based on where we are as a sector, as opposed to the kind of rationale for, for, um, for area planning is around the rationalization of the school state and decline in enrollment figures, whereas our sector is undergoing significant growth. And this inevitably leads to friction. And in our view, in terms of all this, that there needs to be, in terms of the approach taken so far, has been that Irish medium education has, there's been attempts to kind of mold Irish medium education into the current policy and legislative framework. And our view is that the legislative and policy framework perhaps needs to be molded and shaped around the specific needs of the Irish medium sector. Um, I'm going to pass on now to my colleague, Tarlac, who's going to cover some of the other issues, uh, pressing issues facing the sector now from, from SEN to teacher provision. Tarlac with us? I'm not sure he is yet, uh, Kieran. Okay, well, I'll just crack on. Yeah, do you, you want to... Uh, have you, do you want to keep going or do you want to take any yeah, questions while we're waiting for him? So, as I said, yeah, we have significant barriers in, in relation to um, special educational needs provision, which prevents people from receiving the language-specific support that's appropriate to, to the Irish medium environment. The, a lot, many of this has been headed over the years, Chair, and, and reports, sectoral-specific reports from the ETI report in 1989 to the DE review of Irish medium education in 2008. And on all, on all those instances, we've had recommendations, but unfortunately, we haven't seen those recommendations uh, implemented in any meaningful or sustained way. And, and that's compounded or also uh, frustrating that in the larger educational reports in TSN, in many instances, the specific specific needs and specific challenges of our sector are largely ignored. So what we recommend is that we have a, a kind of policy and a cost of action plan, plan for, for SEN within the Irish medium context, and this needs to be developed and adopted by DE D and DA to address a range of uh, press and issues. Um, which we've covered obviously comprehensively within the position paper. Teacher supply is another um, as another keystone issue within the sector. We hear often times, and again, this leads to some frustration within the sector that we are training too many teachers. And, and in many respects, the opposite is true in terms of Irish medium education because of that growth. We have particularly an acute shortage of specialized teachers. Some of this has been recognized in a first start in the new uh, published report there from the uh, panel, the expert panel on educational underachievement. It was also highlighted by the Council of Europe in March of this year. Um, by COMEX, the, the oversight body, when they recognised that there was a growing shorter of, a shortage of subject specialists within um, Irish medium education. So again, we have made a number of recommendations of how this current kind of workforce strategy could be tweaked and changed to better reflect the needs and specific challenges of Irish medium education. Resources, teaching and learning resources, it's a huge issue for our sector. Uh, and this was obviously um, compounded during the whole period of home learning, where children being educated through the, through the medium of rice didn't have an equitable access to high quality um, re resources, particularly digital resources, um, which complement and enhance the learning experience. So our view is that the needs of the Irish medium sector need to be factored in really from the start 
when curriculum and other classroom resources are developed within the education system. And all of these points, um, Chair, it's, it's important to point out, we need to view them, we need to view them through the prism of, of future proofing them as well, because we know that currently the sector is we have over 7,000 young people being educated through years, but that's expected to continue within the next three to four years, we're expected to pass over the 10,000 mark. So you can imagine where this is going and whatever pressing need that we've identified here today is only going to get greater in the coming period. So uh, then obviously I mentioned COVID briefly there. COVID has had a, a catastrophic impact on education worldwide. Um, but these have amplified the issues within the Irish medium sector and the, particularly the adverse impact of a prolonged period of home learning. Um, was compounded for, for children and families in the Irish medium sector. Uh, and we have submitted a paper to the department on this, but it's in the context of the majority of young people that are educated through Irish not having access to the language at home. And what that means for their ability, particularly for those in early years um, and beginning the school journey, that their ability to fully engage with the curriculum when the curriculum is delivered through the, the medium of Irish. And then just the last kind of issues around the Irish medium early year sector, the biggest issue we're faced there is again, huge growth in the sector, which hasn't been met by uh, you know an expansion and a strategy around specific needs of training for uh, practitioners within the sector. So we have a number of people there um, who either have fluency in Irish or the requisite skills, but not both of them. We need to encourage more and more of that going forward. We need specific support, specific work for, workforce strategy for our early, early years, Irish medium, uh, for preschool provision, given a particular importance of preschool in the Irish medium context. So young people that are going preparing for primary one, when the curriculum will be delivered entirely through, through Irish, need to have that bedrock of those early years where they're immersed in the language and that they have they are fully prepared then for full engagement with the curriculum. And this isn't something that, that has been established here alone. This is something that, again, is recognised internationally in terms of best practice of immersing, immersing education models. So just to finalise in terms of, of, of all of that, I suppose, as I said, you know, a lot of what we've talked about here um, is around a specific approach being taken to Irish medium. It's around an acknowledgement that we have different and a diverse education system here, and that's something to be celebrated. And one of the key markers of difference within education here is the fact that we have a small but growing number of young people who are educated through an entirely different language, and that they have specific needs that aren't always reflected in the policy framework that exists around other big macro educational issues. So we need to we need to approach this with a view to at the very outset around policy um, development, strategic developments within education, what will this mean or what could this mean for the Irish medium sector and make those tweaks and changes at the outset so that they best reflect the specific challenges and needs of our sector. Because as I, as I stated um, before during, during the presentation here, we have obviously um, a small percentage, but it's something that's grown and the projected figures are going to uh, enhance all of these issues that, we, that I've touched on here this morning um, as we move uh, forward across the next number of years. A lot of these issues that I've talked about have already been recognised in the Irish Medium Review. Um, the review of Irish Medium Education which took place in 2008. And again, one of the frustrations that we feel within the sector is that many of those recommendations from policy provision to resource to SEN to the whole gambit of, of, of key educational issues haven't really been progressed in a sustained and meaningful way. And we hope moving forward, obviously, as we increase awareness and as the sector continues to grow, that that can change. So thanks very much for your time.
Thanks for that, uh, Kieran. Delighted to have you with us this morning and to be to be hearing from you in detail about uh, the the hopes and challenges facing um, Irish medium education. Can I can I start by giving you an opportunity to, to speak, maybe even perhaps slightly more informally about the the positive aspects, the benefits of of Irish medium education, Irish medium schools. Um, why? Why do why is it why do people enjoy why is it important for people what are the benefits to attend Irish medium schools and maybe you could touch on the significance of um, the first integrated Irish medium preschool um, being launched proudly in my own constituency of of East Belfast. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, yeah, and again, that's uh, that's something that I hope isn't missed during a lot of this debate because I know you understand we're talking about very real issues and very real challenges that the sector faces. But the only reason we're here is that there is in continued and um, sustained interest in Irish medium education, and that's as a result of the very significant advantages that Irish medium and, and immersive education brings. So, as someone who has attended Irish medium education, we're actually this year celebrating 50 years since the first Irish medium school was established here. Um, I attended Irish medium education, my children and I do the same. I suppose the benefits that again, that I touched on that are recognized worldwide, particularly around early immersive education. So, so getting children at the earliest possible stage and, and immersing them in that Irish medium or in that language environment, the benefits are in terms of their cognitive development. Are, are, are huge. The benefits in terms of empathy and, and tolerance for diversity and respect in other cultures and stuff, again, have been well demonstrated. Problem solving skills are enhanced because essentially your, your, your brain is operating with two different uh, program systems, if you like. If you think about it in computer terms, we are computer runs on Windows. It's like having Windows and Android operating at the same time within your computer. That's how some people have described it to me, and I think that that kind of analogy works quite well. So you can flip from one or another depending on the challenge um, that you're faced with. And I think that given all of that and given the greater understanding around the benefits this brings, and not only, obviously, a lot of this conversation is around... Um, is around young people, but even the benefits that, that go on right into late, long, later life. So we, we know that, for instance, things like um, cruel degenerative diseases like dementia and others are delayed by with people that, that, have, that speak uh, two or more languages, that the fact that the brain is operating in two or more uh, linguistic tunes, if you like, delays the onset of some of these more degenerative uh, main diseases and stuff that we see that are that are growing in prominence. So I think the benefits there are, are, are immense. And also in terms of particularly in relation to where we live, we're surrounded by Irish. Um, Irish is all around us. Irish has shaped and formed um, the place that we live, the place that we all call home, regardless of you know our, our religious or political backgrounds or whatever else. It belongs to absolutely every one of us. And, and, and having opportunities for young people to engage with Irish at the very earliest stage within the education system is one of the best ways of, of bringing us all together, in my view. Um, we have opportunities here, particularly with the, the development you perhaps stated there, the, the very exciting development in East Belfast, Chris, where we have the first integrated Irish medium education um, in East Belfast out in Braniel. I was very fortunate enough to visit there um, last week. And, you know, that is testament to how far we have came in such a short period of time. If someone had suggested that that, was, that that would do when maybe 10, even five years ago, I think they would have been laughed at. But considering, you know, the debate across broader society around the status of Irish within society, the increasing um, interaction that Irish medium schools and Irish medium young people are having with all their peers right across society here is having a profound effect. 
and it's opening up the doors for more and more people to engage with the education system and i think that's something to be celebrated and carried down as well brilliant uh, look, there's a there's a wide range of issues I, I'd love to um, ask you about today. I'll, I'll try and let members um, get a, an opportunity to do so as well. But obviously you touch on the statutory duty, the legal imperative that the Department of Education has to encourage and facilitate the development of Irish medium education. Um, and a, a key aspect of that would be appropriate area planning. Can I ask you how area planning is currently working for the Irish medium education sector? Yeah, well, what I, what I would like to say on the outside in terms of that question, Chris, is area planning is a huge task. And I know that there are um, a huge body of work that has taken place to try and grapple with that big, big educational issue. And, and you know, huge credit deserves to go to, to many people in the department and others that have been working with us tirelessly over the last number of years, I suppose. But the genesis of our planning, as was acknowledged by George Bain himself, was around the rationalization of schools, was around acknowledging that we have, obviously, not only do we have uh, a, you know, a uh, split education system here, if you like, but we also have a decline in enrollments. So what Bain recognized was that, that the rationale of this area planning mightn't always fit Irish medium education and that, and that certain cognizances need to be given not only to where we are currently but the anticipated growth of Irish medium and indeed integrated education and if we look at one example for you know for instance if you look at the 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 DE capital this call um so I would acknowledge you know that area planning would want to demonstrate that it's working so what they had was they they put a criteria which was applied to enhance the scoring opportunity for those schools that amalgamated or were on a split side because of area planning. And I can understand the rationale behind that. However, the flip side of that for our sector is that it doesn't work because our sector, unlike other sectors, because of the very specific linguistic maker, we can't amalgamate with, with other sectors. We can't amalgamate with other schools, um, if you like. So it just present, prevents or presents an additional barrier to our schools then in terms of things like the capital calling list. There are also other areas there that we obviously touch on, but I think the key point is that recommendation six of the review of Irish medium education Again, going as far back as 2007, they acknowledge that the Department of Education must ensure that the capital development needs of various medium education are addressed. And we don't think that that's been done in a meaningful way. They also suggested that the Department of Education must ensure that Irish medium education is considered systemically throughout policy development. We are subject to the exact same uh, sustainability thresholds as the other sector, even though we're on completely different trajectories. So our recommendation would be that we look at the specific needs and challenges that are medium education and that we design a bespoke approach which reflects those needs, which is rooted in a commitment to the statutory duty vis-a-vis -vis the development of the sector, and which is based on the fact that we have a growing and a projected to grow sector well into the future. So how can we as a department, how can we as a state best facilitate and encourage that? Okay. And you mentioned that at times, Irish medium staff and pupils have had a, a frustrating sense of invisibility due to a lack of Irish medium proofing of policies by the Department of Education and Education Authority. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I will. And, 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 and I'll, I see my colleague has joined me as well, Tarlux. I'll bring him in maybe to, speak, uh, to give you one example in terms of resources. I think one of the frustrations is, as I said, um, Chris, um, you know, that... We have we we continuously see um, the launch of policies or reports into 
the whole gamut of areas from from SEN to 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 resource provision, and by and large, the Irish medium, the specific needs of the Irish medium sector are largely ignored. There is no reference within um, the, the these documents with these policy frameworks and stuff to those specific challenges. And in many instances, what we have to do is we have to spend an awful lot of time of energy fretting kind of uh, battles after the publication of this, so trying to challenge things post-publication. And what we are suggesting is at the very outset that there should be, given that we have a legal duty around Irish medium education, that there should be a mechanism to proof these things before they're launched to, if we're having a new policy on SEN, for somebody to ask the question at the very outset, what are the specific challenges? What are the needs of various medium education? How does this, how does our idea around challenging SEN reflect on the particular needs and challenges of the Irish medium education? And how do we factor that into this much broader and larger area of work that we're, that we're covering? But if I can, I would just pass on to, to my colleague. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me welcome, let me welcome Tarnock as well. And, and just to pick up on what you said there, Kieran, there, um, is it my understanding there are currently no learning support centres? provided for the Irish medium sector, is that right? Maybe that's where we can bring uh, Tardock in there. Yeah, thanks. Uh, can you hear me okay, Chair? Can, yes, you're very welcome. Uh, okay, apologies for being late. I had uh, some technical issues there. No problem. Um, but uh, I'm going to talk a wee bit just about uh, resources, and I, I can touch on um, some issues around uh, special educational needs as well, um, if you like. Um, You'll know that just this week, um, Fair Start uh, was published and uh, we stated very clearly in there that DE should provide additional and focused support for the Irish medium sector in the form of educational resources. Um, so we recognise there's an urgent need for properly resourced, mainstream-funded mainstream and high-quality standardised teaching and learning resources and support materials across all key stages for Irish medium. Um, from preschool to post-primary. Um, and as Karen was saying there, the needs of the Irish medium sector should be factored in from the start when classroom and other uh, 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 curricular resources are developed within the education system. And this goes back as far as 2008. This was mentioned in the review of Irish medium education, which is now about you know 13 years old, and uh, we're, still, we're still sort of struggling for it. Um, so we... Uh, would ask that the investment is made in, for example, a standardised uh, reading scheme for use in the Irish medium sector, as the current provision stops uh, at P4. Uh, there's nothing after P4 for Irish medium children. Uh, we ask that independent, non-curricular and curricular reading text and support materials for pupils at all levels of attainment and across all key stages in IME are developed. Um, Particularly in the context uh, of the pandemic, we would ask that more resources for remote and for blended learning are produced. There's an urgent need for, for baselining and assessment tools and standardised tests for the IM sector from preschool again to post-primary. Uh, in English medium, there's a wealth of resources to enable parents to help support their children through the medium of English. Similar resources have to be made available for parents of IM, um, IM pupils. And uh, similar to the SEN resource um, issue, IM teachers are often required to make up the shortfall in relation to the creation of linguistically appropriate uh, teaching and learning resources and assessments. 
So we propose that a mechanism be identified to allocate additional teaching allowances to IM teachers, similar to the allowance for teachers uh, in special schools. Um, I can say a few words um, about SEN, if that's okay, Chair. Well, yeah, yeah let me, let me, I, I think some of the other members will ask about that as well, Turnick, so yeah, let, me, let, me bring, let me bring some other members in as well there then. Uh, Deputy Chairperson Pat Shane, MLA. Uh, thanks, Chair, and Tia Divacarja, I was to Falcher and Sean you. You're very welcome here today. And I just want to kick off on the statutory duty that's already been mentioned uh, and uh, ask you to give us your assessment about how well that uh, statutory duty to encourage and facilitate uh, the Irish medium sector has been adhered to. Thanks. Thanks very much, Colonel Margaret. Um, Pat, for the question. I think um, so. The statutory duty is obviously uh, of, of intrinsic importance to our sector. So, for instance, the, the first Irish medium school was established in 1971. It wasn't until 1994 that that school was afforded recognition from from the state. So, so what we've seen post statutory duty has been that that process has been accelerated and that the status of Irish medium education has been enhanced undoubtedly. However, there is a deep sense of frustration within, within the statutory duty. So we, when we are engaging um, with our partners and colleagues in DE and across the whole other area of education, we would hear that we are mindful of our duty around the statutory duty for Irish medium education. One of the things that, that is frustrating, however, um, is that we have no mechanism to assess this. There is no measurable framework which allows us to assess how well or other ways um, we are doing around area planning, around accommodation, around SEN, and as it relates to the, to the statutory duty. So what we would encourage, um, Pat, would be that, that there is this policy framework and also a development strategy which, which accompanies the statutory duty. So it sets out in plain language for us all. Here, here are the parameters here, here's what the statutory duty actually means in real terms on resource provision, on teacher provision, on SEM, on accommodation, on area planning, across all these big educational issues. Here, here's how the statutory duty should inform decision making when it comes to areas within education across all these areas. I think that would help clarify for us all. I think the, the sense is that, you know, there is a sense of frustration that we hear time and time again that we are mindful of our, of our duties around statutory duty. However, we would see decisions being taken, which in many respects we would see as being breached of the statutory duty, or at least the very least ignoring the statutory duty. So there is a sense of frustration that we have no mechanism of like to assess just how well um, the statutory duty or otherwise is, is being implemented. And I think that given the statutory duty was very explicit in this language, um, and subsequent um, legal rulings have clarified this position that it's around removing barriers, that it, that it provides the department with opportunities to take measures that it wouldn't take for other sectors. That's what the statutory duty is about. So for them to be able to do that, I would suggest that we need a policy framework which informs that. What does the statutory duty mean on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of proper functioning of education as it relates to the Irish medium education? Yeah, that's very important. And I mean, it's not even um, pro providing resources that that they don't have to make available to other sectors. It's 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 about 
uh, creating a level playing field. I mean, we've already you've already spoken about the the, the lack of Irish media proofing in terms of policy development and and policy frameworks and so on. But I also wanted to ask you about the impact of the pandemic on Irish medium education and given the unique difficulties that exist and you've already spoken about children who don't have Irish at home and are absolutely dependent on the uh, immersive aspect in the Irish medium sector. Can you outline what range of supports or specific uh, interventions the department or the EA introduced to help support Irish medium through the pandemic? Well, um, thank you very much uh, again, Pat. And I suppose, as you touched on there uh, at the outset of your question, the immersion model and the immersion approach relies on sustained incremental language development with pupils in an immersed language environment, as in the school environment. And this was halted, obviously, at the onset of COVID in March 2020, and then was exacerbated by subsequent periods of home learning, which continued right up until Easter of this year. So a very sustained and pretty long period outside of the classroom. And when you, you know, when you accept that for early years and kids in early years, that those years are fundamental in terms of their ability to properly engage with the curriculum. So within Irish medium education, the, the curriculum, the exact same curriculum is delivered, but it's delivered through an additional language. And there's also an additional subject delivered. And this, again, this is something that isn't always maybe appreciated outside of Irish medium education. Irish medium teachers deliver everything that's delivered in an English medium setting, plus an additional subject, and they do that with a language that by and large isn't the first language of the children at home. So they face additional challenges in doing that. And to, to do this in an effective and sustained way, which they have been doing for, for 50 years, as I said, it relies on having that sustained uh, engagement with those young people. And it, we must, I suppose, during this period, acknowledge the huge achievements and efforts of the Irish medium sector in terms of mitigating against this. With very little support, it should be added. Now, we have had... Um, you know, continuity of, of learning work streams established around Irish medium education. There have been commitments around um, some resource provision and stuff, but by and large, we have seen resources that have been provided that haven't been fit for purpose, that haven't been available in, in high quality areas, that either they aren't available in areas at all, or they, in some instances, we have seen resources that aren't, that aren't fit for purpose, that have been poorly translated and that are appropriate for use in the school uh, or with young people. And all of this is compounded as well, part by the digital divide. So we know that, and again, I'm speaking here as well as a parent who, who has two young primary school age children in an Irish medium school. And we've seen uh, you know, the huge um, efforts that were made to ensure the kids had access to the full range of the curriculum. But by and large, all these were available in English. So we didn't have access to anything near or anything approaching, um, you know, an equitable allocation of those resources to the minimum I, I will stay, however, just to, 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 to make a final point on this, that we have been engaging with the department and we do hope that we know that there is additional resources that the minister has provided for to for for COVID and the implications of COVID and the the adverse impact that it's had and I and I know that and we await confirmation of this but I know that that we hope you know that some of that money will be directed to the very specific challenges that the Irish medium sector face and we have been engaging with colleagues indeed around that and, and we've ever so far received some positive feedback on that so we we hope that we will have a more positive news in that front moving forward. Okay, uh, I wonder if that's okay. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, 
Yeah, thanks, Chair. Um, no, I just want to add that the, the deficiencies in accommodation in the Irish medium sector uh, were magnified as well by the pandemic. Um, I'm sure Kieran has already said that about 60% of uh, accommodation in the Irish medium sector um, is modular uh, or temporary. So that made you know very difficult uh, to form bubbles or to socially distance and you know, to, uh, to put into place all the regulations that were needed during the pandemic. So I just thought it would be worthwhile highlighting that as well. It, it was an extra burden on an already strained sector. Pat, do you want to ask a final question there? Yeah. Another one then. Um, and, and we have uh, Sia in uh, later on this morning. And we've, we've heard recently about their plans for assessments next year. And uh, one, one of the things they have decided to do is omit the, uh, the oral element in language courses. Uh, how how does that? Uh, how, what what's the reaction from the Irish medium sector? You know, and where the education is is by immersion in the language. Well, you know, what, what, how did you react to that news? Yeah, I mean, we 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 uh, if you like, we weren't supportive of the move that was announced there last week. I think that essentially, what is a language without it being spoken? And if there isn't a mechanism by which to assess the spoken language. Um, of young people, then you're taking away a large part of the young people's engagement with that language. And I think there is a particular disadvantage for young people within the Irish medium context, but who would have a high level of fluency, of, of verbal fluency in that language, and not having the ability to have that assessed would place them, I would say, at a, at a disadvantage, uh, disadvantage uh, position in terms of the, the assessment. So I think that I think that, that that decision needs to be reflected on from from what we've gathered. Um, I'm not sure around how this decision was arrived at, whether or not the sector was was consulted around this decision, who the engagement was done with around this. And I know and I fully appreciate that very difficult choices are being made in the current climate, given the, the pandemic and given the circumstances that we find ourselves in. However, I do think that that that, that perhaps that decision was arrived at maybe rather rashly and that it could be reflected on and that some type of provision could be in place to ensure that the verbal uh, fluency of young people and the advantages of the spoken language are recognised and properly assessed during the qualifications process. I think it's incredibly important as well to acknowledge um, that because of the impact of COVID last year, we have already missed out on this. So in terms of we're also thinking around future workforce provision, a lot of the workforce comes from young people who are engaged with the language. And if they're not having their verbal language assessed properly as they go through the school system, we can see the potential adverse impact that this will have on the sector moving forward as many more people may then progress to work within the sector without ever having their verbal fluency assessed in that way. Okay, Pat. Okay, thanks for that, Chair. Colonel uh, Milibang, floods. Thanks. Thanks, Pat. Robin Newton, MLA. Robin, I think you might need to unmute the device. Thanks. Is that it now, Chair? That's you sorted. Thanks, Robin. Can I thank the panel for, for this morning? Chair, can I apologise? I'm going to have to leave the meeting for about 20, 25 minutes after this. Okay. I, I really just have only the one uh, simple question, um, and that really is around the area planning. 
and the role of the department as they prepare area plans and the sector uh, and, and how that is, is being approached. Maybe you could have some indications, Chair. Yeah. Uh, do you like me to just come in here, Chair? Yeah. Yes, thanks. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much, Robin, uh, for your question. So I suppose, as I, as I stated in the outset, area planning is a huge issue within education. So we have the rationalisation of the school estate, we have the claiming enrolment, um, and there are being huge efforts within, right across the sector, um, and right across all sectors in terms of trying to positively engage with that and trying to arrive at creative solutions which first and foremost meet the needs of our young people and ensure that young people have opportunities to receive a high quality education, that they are surrounded by uh, appropriate uh, kind of accommodation, that they are provided with the necessary support that complements that journey and everything that that entails. So that needs to be acknowledged. I think within the Irish medium sector, I, I suppose one of the challenges that, with, that we faced is that this entire policy framework wasn't really designed to meet the needs of the Irish medium sector. It was designed around the rationalisation of the school estate, decline in enrolment at a time when our sector is undergoing significant growth. So from the outside, you can see the additional challenges that that brings. And when we see policy formulation, which has been designed to meet the needs of area planning and to deliver area planning, again, we don't. We, it's difficult for us to assess or to see where the statutory duty crosses over, because we are subject to, to the same sustainability thresholds uh, as other sectors. We are subject to, to the same policy framework as other sectors, even though we're completely different stages of development. And what we would argue is that given that there is a very clear and explicit legal commitment around, around facilitating and developing, uh, developing Irish medium education, that we need a more bespoke approach, that we need to look at, for instance, in particular areas, we have a number of young people coming through primary accommodation. What will their needs be in the future? Do we need to start considering post-primary? And how, does that, how do we factor that in, in terms of area planning? And how do we support that in terms of the policy framework that's, that's designed to deliver area planning? So, you know, the approach is, as I said in the outset, um, Robin, the approach has been characterised by, if you like, an attempt to get at the Irish medium education sector within the broader policy framework, as opposed to what we would argue needs to happen is to mould in the policy framework around the particular needs of the Irish medium sector, given that we have a commitment there um, around the statutory and given that our sector faces additional obstacles and barriers, the role should be to remove those barriers and obstacles and area planning um, for Irish medium education should complement and enhance that. Okay, Chair, thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Robin. Can I call Daniel McCrossan, MLA? Thank you, Chair, and uh, you're you're both very very welcome. Thank you for your detailed presentations, and delighted to have you uh, before us uh, again. Um, I have a, a little nephew who attends the local Irish medium school here in Straban, and uh, it, it really is uh, it's, it's great crack here, and I'm learning at, at, at such a young age, and uh, you know particularly when sometimes I don't understand what he's saying. It, it, uh, but it's a fantastic wee school, and, and they're due to get a new school in Straban. I'm delighted to see those facilities improve. And same with Oma, fantastic facility in Oma as well. Yeah. So delighted to have you both here. I'll fire the questions. 
Um, you, you've uh, identified a growing shortage of teachers for the Irish medium, uh, Irish medium education. This appears to be a particular issue at post-primary level, especially in the STEM subjects. Recently, we were made aware that the Irish medium sector has a number of teachers who come from the, the south of Ireland. Is the, and this, this came up last week at committee um, by the uh, chairperson, I think, of the General Teaching Council. So with that said, is the Irish medium sector heavily dependent on teachers coming from the south of the island? Uh, that's the first question. Secondly, how many approximately would you have in the sector in its entirety? Uh, how many each year? So it's just general. And finally, would it be a major problem if this supply was disrupted by problems emanating from Brexit? So thank you. Yeah, I was going to, as a fellow Shaban man, I was going to pass over to my, to my colleague. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Daniel, but thanks very much for the question. Yeah, yeah thanks, Daniel. And um, uh, I hope things uh, continue to go well uh, in the big smoke <laughs> uh, for everything. Um, I, we don't have exact figures. Uh, it's very hard to identify exact numbers uh, of teachers that we have in the Irish medium sector who um, have trained and qualified in the South. I think anecdotally, we could safely say that it's not that many at the minute. Mm -hmm. um, but to answer the, the third part of your question, I think it was, um, we wouldn't want to see the supply or the potential supply uh, of teachers from the South to be hindered um, in any way, particularly if they're coming from a, a Gaeltacht area which can only um, enrich uh, the Irish medium sector. Um, our teacher supply issues um, do go beyond that, and um, it was addressed in, uh, again, in a fair start, you know, just this week, where they said there's a growing shortage of subject uh, specialists in our schools. And they said, uh, particularly the case in Irish medium schools for what is a growing sector. So it was good to get that acknowledged um, in that report. This was also raised recently uh, by COMEX, which is a committee of experts, uh, which oversees the implementation of the European Charter for uh, regional or minority languages. Um, so uh, as part of our sectoral plan, and there's a link to the sectoral plan um, in the standing paper, or in the, the papers chassis, yeah, the standing paper, um, we have identified the workforce needs for the Irish medium sector going forward. Um, the, our, our very basic sort of requirements would be the development of a specialist Irish medium post-primary PGCE course and a post-primary B.Ed. Um, and this should be should be able to take in with uh, STEM subjects. Uh, St Mary's already deliver many of the subject areas and the PGCE and the B.Ed courses as well as that bespoke Irish medium training. Um, we also would need an uplift in existing provision of Irish medium PGC and BA courses. Um, we would like to see creative approaches being taken to allow the conversion of specialist teachers with spoken Irish to be able to convert to the Irish medium sector uh, and for AM teachers to be trained in specialist subjects on an ongoing basis. Um, we'd like to see a joined up approach across DE and the higher education institutions to ensure that all pathways are open to those who wish to study Irish with another subject at undergraduate level. So that's, uh, I hope that answers your question, Daniel, and uh, yeah. thanks for asking. That, 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 that's very much appreciated. Just to make a point on, on the break, the reason I've asked specifically about the Brexit uh, uh, element to this is because at the presentation of the committee last week, the GTC 
committee uh, members were uh, arguing that the, the potential could be a crisis uh, situation for the sector as a result of Brexit. I'm glad you've, yeah. you've alleviated, alleviated some concern I had from that point, and uh, I, I do agree with what you've said. I think it, it's a much more accurate reflection of where things are, so thank you. Daniel, if I could just add, uh, you know, it is very disappointing that the GTC and I didn't actually contact us on that issue. Um, we're disappointed, but not entirely surprised that there was no contact from GTC on that issue. If, if you know, it's the issue that they say it is. Yeah, no, thank you. And Can I, we look at Yeah, I would just like to add, Daniel, on, on that specific question. I suppose, you know, as Tarlax alluded to, there wouldn't be huge numbers, um, but given that we are such a small sector, even any impact on the number of teachers uh, would have you know, and could potentially have huge implications for the sector. And I think one of the biggest reasons that we don't have a huge influx of teachers um, come from the South to teach in the North is the huge disparity in terms of pay remits between teachers North and South. Teachers in the South um, are remunerated um, to a much larger extent than teachers in the North. And that's also why we don't have the same number of, for example, accessors. Uh, and examiners that come up to support um, facilitation of exams through the minimum of ours, for instance, with CA, because they are much better paid in the South, and, and that's that's the, the biggest reason, simply. So there's 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 additional areas there, and I think that, you know, given that, you know, the, the amount of work that teachers engage in here, I think that that needs to be looked at in terms of ensuring that the teachers here are, are paid and, and respected in the same way as their counterparts in the South. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, I, I totally agree with what you've said. And Tarek, you, you, like, just just as well to go back to your point, uh, last week at the uh, the presentation, we, I suggested a solution to the GTC that they could very easily, at their discretion, reach a mutual agreement with the counterparts in the south of this island to deal with the issues and around fees. You know, the, the barriers, the border. I actually said the border was being placed here by the GTC, and it shouldn't be. Uh, I, I think we need to do all we can to support and help the sector and, and to avoid unnecessary yeah. scare mongering, which is exactly what I feel happened last week. I have another point here, Chair, very briefly, in relation to C2K uh, and a few other issues, so I'll, I'll jump to it. Um, it's disappointing to hear that uh, learning resources for the Irish medium education are still significant, significantly inadequate. I know you've acknowledged that, and a lot of what has been said. Uh, find resources emanating from SIA adequate is the first question. So SIA uh, resources from SIA. Secondly, does C2K support your work adequately with hardware and software? So is C2K adequate? Uh, also, do you have problems specific to your sector during the pandemic? So is running in particular that jumps out from the pandemic? Uh, and uh, a further point is, does the EA provide your staff with appropriate in-service training? And a final point, I'm sorry for the long one of this, are you aware of the approach taken in other jurisdictions to the teaching of Welsh or Scots Gaelic? Is there uh, anything we could learn from, from those two areas? So to sum it off, see you, has their support been adequate? Secondly, is C2K up to scratch to support the sector? And has it been listening to your concerns? Uh, thirdly, uh, has the pandemic had any direct impact on what you're trying to achieve? And have you had adequate support? Has EA provided EA provided uh, appropriate in-service training? And finally, uh, when you look at all jurisdictions, um, is there anything we could learn from them? Okay, can you want me to, um, yep. to kick off here? Uh, I hope I can remember all your questions, Daniel. Uh, I'll start off with uh, SIA. Um, there's no doubt that SIA uh, provide a valuable service for Irish Medium. And unlike the Education Authority, they have um, a dedicated Irish Medium team. Um, 
they have a small team um you have to say a very dedicated and a very hard work and, and a professional team but very small um the issue that we would have there is that um there's no funding ring fence specifically for Irish medium which is a big issue for us it was the case at one time that there was a certain amount of money ring fence for use in our sector um another thing about see is that the nature of their work plans often means that they can't display the necessary flexibility to deal with the emerging needs of a growing sector. So they they appear quite sort of you know set in their ways around their work plans um, and their and their objectives. Sometimes it's a wee bit hard to keep up with uh, the sector because it's grown so fast and the needs change uh, for resources. So that would be see That would be our. Um, interpretation of their role in regards to Irish medium. Um, UK was the next one, was it? Yeah, see you Um Well, as you will know, C2K is undergoing, uh, undergoing a refresh um, at the minute. Um, we have a seat at the at the table to, to discuss that. Um, our issues with C2K um, not everything that is not all resources that are produced by C2K are, are made available in Irish. Um, uh, that's not news to us. That's you know, something that we've been dealing with for years. Uh, there have historically been issues around um, sort of hardware and connectivity in Irish medium schools. Um, this has got a lot to do as well with the, the deficiency in accommodation that uh, we mentioned earlier. A lot of our schools are in non-school buildings, if you like, it's sort of temporary and modular accommodation. Um, I don't know, Kiana, if you would like to add anything else about uh, C2K and the, and the new rollout or... Yeah, I think I think one of the key points, and, and this is something we've we've raised with, with the Education Authority, Daniel, has been that within, within the EA generally, I, I think, you know, the resource allocation in terms of staff doesn't reflect the education service that we have. So we have, as I said, you know, 7,000 young people being educated through ARIES, you know, with numbers growing and increased engagement with and interaction with the various service, services of the education authority. I think, for instance, in terms of C2K, to give one example, that they have at least one member of staff there who's dedicated to work within Irish medium. The Irish medium contacts would be would make a huge difference. And we've seen that that in recent times that new posts have become available through C2K. And it was, you know, with some frustration that again we've seen that there was no criteria around having some ability to interact with uh, Irish medium schools and to acknowledge and to you know un have a deep understanding of the particular challenges that Irish medium education faces around engagement with technology, around resource provision, around digital, the, the huge digital debate and putting mitigatory measures in place to support that. And a lot of the solutions lie within the education system itself. A lot of teachers have come up with very creative solutions around this type of stuff and they just need that additional piece of support to encourage and to work with them on that. So I think, you know, in terms of the EA and in terms of C2K more specifically, if that approach were to take place, I think it would, it would potentially have transformational impact on the sector. I also want to just want to raise the, the, the final point that you raised there, Daniel, as well, around international experiences. I think we have a huge amount uh, to learn uh, from other jurisdictions and, and indeed, they, they would have something to learn from, from ourselves as well. But if you look, particularly at Wales, at the pro, very proactive approach that the Welsh Government takes around the development of the Welsh Medium Education, uh, we see that, that, that it isn't something that they 
are neutral on. It's something that they actively try and promote and develop and encourage. And we've seen with their um, Comrade 2050 um, strategy, which is around increasing the number of Welsh speakers. And Wales, one of the key component parts of that is Welsh medium education. So they, as I said, they, they set about looking at where the directory is going, where the enrolment figures are going, and the state themselves then play a very active role in planning for future provision. They ensure that all resources are available through high quality um, to the medium of Wales. And recently, there has been a bill before the Welsh Assembly to provide every single child in Wales with uh, bilingual uh, education up to the age of seven. So I go, and I know we're, we're many years behind that, but again, it just gives you an indication of the disparity of like in terms of the approaches between the two jurisdictions. Scotland as well, there are a number of things that we can learn uh, from Scotland. We've seen, for instance, around um, one of the big kind of achievements in Scotland is around common and parent, which is a, which is a resource which is dedicated to parents, but which acknowledges that parents that by and large send their kids to, to uh, Gaelic medium schools in Scotland don't speak the language themselves. So they need to be supported so that they are adequately able to support their children through this educational journey that they have. And to that end, they provided this very interactive resource which engages with parents, which supports parents when they're making that uh, choice, which provides them with resources so that they can enhance the, their kids' uh, learning ability and stuff through the medium uh, of Gaelic. Um, and that's yeah. it. And if we look at COVID and stuff and the impact and the difference, the things like that would have made to parents and provide that comfort. Because one of the concerns that we have, Daniel, as well, is that during the period of home learning, particularly new parents that are making a decision around, do I send my child to an Irish medium education? Maybe one of the reasons that they don't would be, we couldn't properly support my young person at home um, being, doing the home learning because we don't speak the language ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that we're also very, very aware of and very concerned about. Yeah, it's, it's a big barrier. Final point, final point, Daniel. Yep, it's certainly a big barrier uh, uh, in terms of a lot of families I know would like their children to go into Irish medium education. I think that is the barrier. You've hit the nail right on the head there. I think you're right. Wales is the greatest example we could follow. Their approach to this is proactive, positive, and progressive. Everything I would like to see from government here in relation to the sector, and absolutely it goes without saying. We have my full support. I'm delighted there's a fellow Straban man on the panel here. Uh, I know his family quite well, uh, and I just want to wish you very, very well and uh, going forward. And uh, just a final point, Chair, is just uh, speech and language therapists for Irish speakers. Are there any? It's just a question I had burning in the back of my mind that I would like to probably yeah, raise. De definitely not a final point. It's a question, Daniel, but it's, it's a good one. So I'll, I'll let it go ahead, and then we'll bring Nicola Brogan in immediately after. Go ahead. Uh, well, there's a very short answer to that. Um, there are none. Um, uh, not only are there no speech and language therapists, but they don't have the assessment tools um, to actually you know, practice uh, what is needed for Irish medium children in an Irish medium classroom. Uh, okay. there, uh, you've you know, already heard there are over 200 learning support centres uh, or classes in the English medium sector, and none exist for the Irish medium sector. Uh, which places an extra burden on teachers, which really has to be, you know, uh, recognised uh, in some form. Yeah, ho yeah. hopefully that uh, issue of learning support and speech and language therapy is something we might come back to here before the end of yeah. the session. But uh, thanks for that, Daniel. Bring Nicola Brogan, MLA in, please. Thanks. 
Thank you, Chair, and Gormelgov, Kieran, August, Tarda, August, Falcherev, and you. Um, it's really lovely to have you here um, at the committee this morning and to hear from you and to hear all the positives about the Irish um, medium sector. And honestly, it's no wonder that it is the fastest growing sector, given all the positives that Kieran, you uh, particularly highlighted, um, highlighted this morning, and particularly the positive kind of educational outcomes for disadvantaged areas. So, really, it is no wonder it is the fastest growing sector. Um, I will, however, turn to some of the challenges the sector is facing. Um, you've already touched upon COVID and how um, COVID has impacted the sector and in particular um, the fact that children, um, some children within the sector weren't able to be fully immersed in the language um, if their parents didn't speak Irish at home and also about in terms of available resources um, when with remote learning. So first of all, can you tell me what your priorities are um, in terms of resource production for the sector moving forward, please? Um, I'll take that, Chair, if that's okay. Um, so, uh, thanks for your question, Nicola, for my guess in case. Um, I'm going to refer again to uh, a fair start because it's sort of fresh in your mind. It was only published this week. And it's stated very clearly in there that DE should provide additional focused support for the Irish medium sector in the form of educational resources. Um, we've known for a long time now that there's an urgent need uh, for properly resourced, mainstream funded high quality uh, standardized teaching and learning resources and support materials across all key stages and that the needs of the Irish medium sector should be factored in from the start. Um, one second, I see. Um, so the very simple answer is that we don't have anything specific or bespoke for the Irish medium sector. We need an overarching policy to address the disparative approach in terms of supporting pupils uh, with SEM. So the first step there would be um, research, which is needed to identify the best way of moving forward on this. As, as we have said before, the most urgent issue is the lack of diagnostic tools. Um, education psychologists, they have to conduct assessments in English only, and there are very few staff within EA or DE who understand the particular nuances of ACM within the IM sector, or have an understanding of the nuances of immersion education. Uh, we've already talked about the lack of uh, learning support centres, uh, 200 for English uh, for English medium, um, one for Irish medium. Um, we know from parents that they've had to split up families where the older siblings have gone uh, to an Irish medium school. The younger child has maybe presented with a learning difficulty but there is no provision in Irish medium for that child, so the family you know, has to be split up, which is a very sorry state of affairs, I think. Yeah, if I can just, if yeah, I can just come in there as well, Tarlac, um, Nicola, and again, just kind of touching on your point and, and also touching on the point that, that Daniel raised earlier. We look at, for instance, C2K as, as one example there, and that, you know, the lack of party in terms of C2K provision, again, stood out um, during COVID. So if we, if we look at, for instance, C2K and news desks, so within our sector, Kids get one article uh, per day, but the news desk get two articles a day. So there's an immediate disparity there. Um, and I seen it that delivers on the summer nukta thing, which which is delivered through C2K, which is the kind of equivalent to to news desk. Doesn't receive any strategic funding from the department or EA to deliver any of this. It's provided with funding from 
from Corus Nagiliga. And I think that, that one of the things we need to look at, for instance, would be strategically funding an ICN to ensure that they are able to deliver this and to ensure that that, there, that the service that is delivered to ICN pupils in terms of, of this, in this case, C2K and Shamanukta, it reaches a, a fair, fair level, it reaches a par with what is currently afforded to the English medium sector. Yeah, absolutely, Karen. I agree with that there. Why would you not deserve the same? Um, so I suppose that's just a, a, a good step to move forward. Um, I'd also like to touch upon the um, workforce um, difficulties that was, uh, we, we touched upon earlier, and in particular the shortage of staff within post-primary schools, especially staff within post-primary schools. Um, can, what kind of recommendations have you made um, to address this here? And ha have you taken this to the department yet? And if so, what kind of engagement have the department had with you about um, your difficulties? Yeah, just uh, two seconds, Karen. Let hold. Um, one second, please. Get the notes here. Order. Um, yeah. Nicola, sorry for the delay. Um, again, a fair start. Um, you know, highlighted um, the issue of teacher supply uh, and IME. Um, they said that uh, there is a growing shortage of subject specialists in our schools, and then they emphasised the point that uh, this is particularly the case in the Irish medium sector for for the Irish medium sector and what is a growing sector. Um, as I said earlier, this this issue is raised as well by comics. Uh, the European Committee, uh, which is the implementation of the European Charter for Regional or Minority Languages. Um, so uh, the sort of approaches that we would like to see taken, uh, as I said earlier, were the development of uh, specialist PGCA courses for Irish medium. And as I said earlier, the uh, expertise is there in St Mary's. And, uh, uh, you know, we don't think it would take that much just to offer the courses that are sort of lacking them in a particularly STEM and so on for post-primary. Um, and a general increase um, in places, particularly in light of the fact that there seems to be uh, too many uh, sort of teachers being trained for the English medium sector. So we would ask for uh, an, you know, a general uplift uh, in the number of uh, PGC and BA courses. Um, a conversion uh, of course, now this has already been trialled by um, one Irish medium post primary school in particular, but it, it would need to be resourced and it would need to be uh, it would need to be developed, uh, which would allow for the conversion of a specialist teacher who has already got a, a good level of spoken Irish to convert to the AM sector, um, and for existing AM teachers to be trained in those specialist subjects where there is a lack. Uh, so, uh, in general, a joined-up approach, I think, is important between DEEA and all the um, in third-level institutions, just to ensure that um, all pathways are open, uh, you know, for students who want to take Irish with a subject, regardless of what the subject is. Um, and that's just an outline of uh, some of the approaches we would like to see. Yeah. And if I can, Nicola, as well, just to add a further point on that one, one area we haven't really um, had too many opportunities to dig into too deep has been particularly early years. And there is a particular need around, um, you know, staff and particular staff and need and workforce need within early years. So one of the big issues is that we need, there's an urgent need for investment in staff development, training and education to build 
the requisite expertise and the skills and competencies that, that are needed within our sector so that, so that our preschool students can deliver a highly can deliver a consistently high standard of Irish language immersion education at preschool level across the sector. The importance of that can't be stressed enough. The, the needs of early years within Irish medium are over and above the needs of the broader sector, if you like, because again, you're preparing young people to engage with the curriculum through a language which isn't their first language, to the language that they that they have learnt through their engagement with the school. By and large, like that's gradually changing as we have more parents that are, uh, you know, raising their children through through the medium of Irish. However, they, they still are the minority, and the majority of kids that are engaged with Irish medium education are coming from a background of not having that language. So, having the necessary support for a preschool sector in place, ensuring that their pathways, our training pathways, afforded. Two people who want to engage with that, and that that is encouraged and enhanced for Irish medium uh, students and stuff, will ensure that that not only and there's there's also a big demand on preschool places within Irish medium education as well. So it's around what do we need to do to meet that demand, and what do we need to do also to support staff to ensure that that the sector is able to deliver that consistent high standard of immersive education at that stage, which is really really intrinsic to what it is we do as a sector. Grandmother Kieran, I fully agree with you there and um, it was the point I was going to make next and also going from the um, Fair Start report across the board, not just within the Irish medium sector but in the English uh, sector as well, they did put emphasis on the fact that we should be putting more resources into nursery and preschools because it is so important. Um, so can you just tell me then what kind of engagement you've had with the department um, around like staffing or um, the early years or secondary, uh, primary or post-primary, what kind of engagement yeah. you've had with them or what kind of response you've had with them? Yeah, well, well, this is something that's been uh, an issue for a number of years, as Tarlac alluded to. It's something that's been highlighted by 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 Colleen Gilskolak and by by practitioners within the sector. I mean, it's it's teachers themselves, principals themselves that are in touch with us, and and, and I'm not exaggerating when I say on a daily basis around the acute shortage. And and as Tarlac referenced, Nicola, this has been compounded by COVID. When there is an onus all around bubbles and stuff, so when you can't access the the substitute teacher, for instance, when somebody's sick, then it, it throws a lot of things into into danger in terms of you know allowing kids to to, to have that uh, access to the education and stuff. So these are issues; these are real day time issues that we're experiencing today. That isn't something that we're we're talking about merely as, as some type of problem that may come out us down the road. But however, I must say that in recent times we've had some positive feedback from the department and the department has now agreed um, and is working with us to establish a kind of working group to look specifically at this issue. We've provided them with recommendations, we've got positive feedback from them and we look forward um, and we have a very positive engagement with the, the Irish medium and integrated team within the department. Um, we have a very positive working relationship with them and we look, look forward to working with them further to make sure that this particular issue is addressed in a meaningful way, which again, deals with the issues that we face now, but it is also putting in place the mechanisms and the structures to ensure that the future needs of the Irish medium sector, you know, as it continues to grow, will be met in terms of teacher provision. Shane, good morning, Kieran. Um, I'm glad to hear that there. That's good. I'm glad to hear that you have had positive engagement and are um, feeling positive about that. Um, before I go, I think the chair is looking me away. One <laughs> thing to point just about um, educational underachievement and the record within the Irish medium sector is brilliant. So can you kind of give any tips to um, other like post-primary non-selective schools that are... Um, keen to improve their educational outcomes for children from less advantaged areas. Yeah, we engaged. Um, we engaged, uh, you know, very fully with the, the expert panel on, on education and achievement, and again, it was really refreshing reading that report because, 
you know, obviously there were important things, in, particularly within the action plan, which relate to, to our sector and, and with deal with issues that have been long-standing. So, for instance, the issue around assessment tools for kids with special educational needs, having those in place, this is something that, that people have been talking about for over 20 years. And it looks like finally we may see some progress on that as a result of this report. And indeed, it's, it's worth pointing out as well that, that as a sector, we also have to learn from our peers within the English medium sector and some of the novel approaches that they're taking. But I think, you know, the big emphasis well now in education is, you know, it's encapsulated in, in, in you know, the, the idea that every, every child, every day, that every single child, every, uh, you know, deserves an opportunity every day to engage with learning in a very high quality and immersive setting. And the pastoral elements within Irish medium education, I think, fosters that approach so you know, the the very uh, big emphasis that Irish Medium Schools place on pastoral care, on the overall well-being of the child, um, encourages, if you like, and nourishes this idea that you know you may not be gifted in this academic area or this academic subject, but you have just as much worth and contribution to the class and to the setting as anyone else. And I think that that's something that which you know we see this anecdotally, Nicola. We see this all the time. We see young people emerging from post-primary Irish medium schools, for instance, that are full of confidence, that are see themselves as active citizens, that want to engage positively with the world around them. And I think that that's something that's very, very um, special. And I think that's something that needs to be encouraged and enhanced. Jack, uh, can I add in just one small point there as well? Go ahead, and then I'll, I'll bring uh, Justin McNulty, MLA, in. Thanks. I just want to add, I think Irish, Irish medium schools have a lot to offer um, our English medium counterparts as regards um, language acquisition, uh, second language acquisition, particularly in those areas with a high percentage of newcomers in their schools. I think Irish medium teachers have a lot of skills there that um, are transferable to, to schools who are dealing with um, those language issues. And I'm sure that they'd be too glad, only too glad to share some of that expertise and uh, good practice. Thanks for that. Thanks, thanks Nicola. Thank you. Can I bring in Justin McNulty, MLA, please? Thanks. Jadeev, Kieran, Turlock, uh, thank you very much for your presentation this morning. Um, Kieran, you've you've recently moved into Corner of the Gael Scoliata, so it's a new new beginning for you. So, listen, best wishes, best luck, and uh, listen, you're a powerfully positive and passionate advocate for the Irish language, Kieran, and I wish you well in your new role. Um, in terms of, it's, it sort of makes my blood boil to a large extent, hearing that the struggle that the Irish medium sector is having to get funding, get uh, proper accommodation, it's shocking. It's shocking. It's, it's the same here in Uri where they're really struggling to have suitable accommodation for, the, for, their, for their children and teachers. Whereas, can you give me examples of, in, in Europe, where the native tongue, our native tongue, like the native tongue of this land, is struggling to get funding and get, get support. Whereas, are, are there examples of such happening in any other country in Europe? Well, I think um, one of the experiences that, that we've had through our engagement with our European counterparts, um, Justin and Garmin and Wagon for the best voices, I uh, really appreciate that. Um, I think, you know, if we look at, for instance, what's taking place currently in France, I think there is an absolutely appalling record within France around promotion and protection of minority language rights and minority communities within France more generally. So we see, and we've seen only recently during the pandemic, there were huge protests by the Breton community in, um, in the north of France around recognizing the needs of Breton speakers. So the Breton speaking population 
has plummeted in the last 50 to 60 years particularly and the French government which still hasn't ratified the European Charter for regional or minority languages like basic fundamental steps that have been ratified by scores of countries across Europe and around the world even um, hasn't been ratified by the by the French government so there's huge issues there but that also contrasts with more very, very much more positive developments in other areas so we see for instance what's taking place in places like Catalonia and the Basque Country and Dave Wales that I touched on earlier where there is very much a proactive approach taken to acknowledging that we have something unique here, that we have something that's very worthwhile, that bilingualism, regardless of the language, is something that brings very huge positive benefits to society as a whole. And given that we have this connection to and this unique language, which is uniquely all of ours, everyone who resides on, 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 on this land, that we have something very special. And why not? use this as a mechanism to promote all the health benefits that come along with bilingualism and immersive education. So, you know, there are certainly instances, um, Justin, of bad practice and bad approaches in Europe, but I think they are outweighed generally by the much more positive approaches that we're seeing. And I think that the, the, the direction of travel is only the things generally are moving in a more positive direction. I think that that's something to be, to be celebrated uh, and encouraged. Okay, well, there is a failure to recognise from some quarters, Kieran, which I'm sure makes your blood and Turks' blood boil, uh, where they say there are more speakers of Polish, there are more speakers of uh, other languages in the north, and maybe that may be correct, but they're not our native tongue. That's not the native tongue of this land, and, and you've been a very passionate uh, supporter of, of our native tongue. It's been said often, Kieran, that Irish medium sectors, uh, Irish medium schools, receive preferential treatment and attract additional funding that isn't available to other sectors. Can you give me more? information on your perspective on that carol yeah just very right quick point at the start i mean we've we've alluded to some of the huge challenges and obstacles that various medium education um face and the young people face and the additional barriers that they face this has been recognized um you know by by your by international um bodies like the council of europe recently or in teacher provision it's also been recognized by several specific reports by the de and stuff and and, and the statutory duty itself is an acknowledgement of the additional barriers that the Irish medium young people face, that, 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 that the Irish medium sector faces. So there are instruments there that, if you like, acknowledge that there are these additional barriers, which in turn then completely, you know, dismiss this idea of preferential treatment, which which just doesn't exist. But I, I do I do want to pass to my to my colleague uh, Carla, who can give you more detailed um, answer to that question, uh, Justin. Okay, thank you, Justin Gormigat. Um, as um, as you'll be aware, probably, uh, you know, various groups of children attract extra funding into their school budgets via the common funding uh, formula um, for the reasons that Cairn has outlined there. There's just an extra workload in um, dealing with certain groups uh, of pupils. So if I could maybe quote from the, the, most, uh, the most recent DE figures, um, and I'll just give you a brief outline of those extra amounts. Uh, and as an example, um, a child from the travelling community will attract an extra £1,104 per annum uh, per child. Uh, in total this year, that um, equaled £1.2 million pounds, uh, in total. Um, a child from uh, a service personnel family would attract an extra £441 per annum, which accounts for about £200,000 per year. Newcomer children attack, attract an extra uh, £1,100 per year, similar uh, to traveller children. 
um, Irish medium, Irish medium children, Irish medium primary children attract one hundred and twenty one pounds per child per annum, which accounts in total for not point one three percent of the entire uh, school's budget, around about seven hundred eighty thousand pounds. Uh, in post primary education, uh, and this includes Irish medium units, the amount is four hundred and fifty three pounds per annum, which again is less than 1% of the entire um, LMS budget. Uh, again, there are different amounts awarded for, for different categories of people, uh, uh, of pupils in primary and uh, post-primary. Um, and as Karen has outlined there, you know, various reasons why we get this, albeit a very small amount. Uh, we have an extra subject uh, to deliver in the classroom. Uh, we're the fastest growing sector, so we face um, specific challenges regarding infrastructure uh, and staffing, as we have heard at great length about the deficiencies in accommodation and teacher supply. We have a higher rate of SEN, free school meals, um, and a higher rate of children from, from disadvantaged backgrounds in the IM sector compared to other sectors, which bring their own challenges. And as we've heard again, there's a shortage of bespoke resources for use in schools, particularly SEN, leisure reading, and so on. And this means that IM teachers will often have to spend that extra time to create uh, their own And there are no learning support centres, and I know that you're probably sick um, of us saying that by now, but it does place an extra burden on the entire staff in an Irish medium school. So uh, £121 per year per child for a primary Irish medium child. We would ask that the IM factor in the common funding formula is increased to a similar rate as that of newcomer uh, and traveller children. Uh, thanks for the question, Gormaigat. Gormaigat, um, in terms of the SEND piece, which has been discussed already, uh, I want to just probe that a little bit further. I'm a bit disturbed that because it's, it's the Irish medium sector, that things, it's sort of, the sort of view is, oh, it's okay, they don't really need that additional need, which is crazy, which is, is uh, wrong um, and discriminatory, to say the least. Um, but you mentioned that uh, the lack of SEND resources within the Irish medium sector, you've mentioned about that already, Kieran. Would you be able to quantify exactly what is available and highlight the real priorities for development, please? Yeah, so some of these issues were touched on in a first start, um, as, as we mentioned earlier, Justin, and they relate to, so for instance, um, you know, how do we assess uh, whether or not there is an additional learning need within the young people? So we have assessment tools which allow teachers to, you know, look at this in depth and then to assess and to see where the kids are and where the additional support is required. In spite of the sector being over 50, now 50 years old, in spite of that having statutory duty and stuff, we still don't have those assessment tools available through the minimum device. So in many instances, we have to wait until the kids are then engaging with the English language, which in some cases starts at primary four, before they can be assessed for the, around that specific additional learning need that they have, because we don't have the tools, the early the tools to do this through the minimum device. So that is something that needs to be addressed. Uh, urgently and again we were we were um, you know happy to see that acknowledged within the first start document again the issue around educational psychologists so when you need to require somebody external to come in and assess a young person it's vitally important that those people um do have a, a, an ability to to uh, interact 
through the Amino Rise too, that they are able to assess and get a proper picture of the needs that those young people have. And to do that, they need to be able to engage with the young people in their language of education. So the young people are being educated through the Amino Rise. The terms, how they conceptualize a lot of these things is through the Amino Rise, and they need to be able to be assessed through that language. So we need to have a skills audit. We need to have see where the gaps exist and make sure that the, the entire infrastructure around SEN is properly catered for and that it is language specific. It isn't good enough. And, and again, this is something that comes in many cases from a lack of awareness. And one of the things that we are keen to do and seek support around is to build an awareness of the Irish medium sector generally. I think at times, you know, one of the issues we have is that there isn't awareness. It isn't necessarily driven by somebody you know, with a hostile or negative attitude to Irish medium education. It's just from a place of not having the awareness of the specific challenges and needs of Irish medium education because of a lack of experience of it. So we need to build that awareness in so that people understand that it isn't good enough just to maybe get this translated into Irish when that does happen or to have the education psychologist come out because they speak English anyway, so we'll do it through English. We need to have the specific things that meet the needs, the specific infrastructure and tools, if you like, that meet the, the, the specific needs of the Irish uh, sector. And that includes having the, the, the assessment tools available in Irish, having the educational uh, psychologist available in Irish, having the learning, uh, the learning support centres delivering education through Irish. By and large, when kids have had um, more severe additional learning needs, what, what recommendations students have received for, for the last number of decades has been, you know, the problem, well, you know, what they need is they need to be sent to an English medium school. That that is one way to to if you like to work around this. That doesn't happen in Wales. In Wales, they have specific support centres there through the medium of Wales that are able to support these young people to reach you know their level. But to do that through the choice of their language, which is Welsh in this case, and we need similar uh, approach here uh, around the Irish medium education. Tarlac, I don't know if you would like to add anything to that. Yeah. <coughs> Yeah, Ken, just on the point of um, the parents being referred to, you know, to English medium, I think that comes as well from a general lack of awareness um, of Irish medium education, immersion education uh, and bilingualism, that the default position seems to be, oh, you know, go to English medium. Um, th there, there's a body uh, of research that would suggest that for a great deal of uh, special educational needs, that a second language is actually helpful and will actually support the child um, in their development. So, I, I, you know, it's, it's not just that there are no learning support centres. Uh, it sometimes is the case that it may not be needed and, and that the child can stay uh, in Irish medium education. But it just seems to be the default position that, well, if your child is any sort of difficulty at all, um, you know, they have to go to English medium. And that, as I said, there's a body of evidence and research now to suggest that that's not the case. Okay, Justin, final point, please, thanks. Uh, that, that would be discriminatory if that was the case. Um, just finally, um, on a positive note, Gurma Elk of Toyota and Kieran for that answer. On a positive note, last night's re uh, Telegraph reported that you spoke about the exponential growth of the Irish medium sector, Kieran. The, the Belfast Telegraph reported that more people are studying Irish now than French at A level will be studying Irish now than uh, French who have over the coming years, which is fantastic to see that enthusiasm and interest for our native tongue here. Absolutely brilliant. In terms of uh, my own constituency here, Kieran, and Tariq, like you might give me some information. You have a fantastic uh, Irish and vibrant Irish language uh, sector with uh, Bunskull here in Newry, Monskull, Nishkull, and they all are uh, probably have issues around uh, their accommodation. What are your, what, what's your 
um, knowledge of what plans there are for new build and what are the barriers to new builds currently? Yeah, so we, we as we mentioned earlier, Justin, and again, you, you're 100% right. I think there are a lot of positive developments that are happening at a societal level. I think a lot of that has been, if you like, encouraged by the, the, the debates that are taking place around the area, the status of Aries within society, which are, if you like, breaking down a lot of the barriers and which are allowing people to engage with the language in their own terms. And one of the big advantages we're seeing recently, for instance, and I mentioned, I mentioned this earlier in, in response to a question from the chair, is around the integrated um, development in East Belfast, where we're seeing, you know, um, uh, the first Irish medium integrated education setting at preschool. And that's that's a huge development and that is testament to the progress that has been made and to the effect that more and more people are engaged with the language. I think adult learners, for instance, if you look at that, Justin, you know, I think that there'll be more adults learning Irish than doing any other educational course anywhere here. And I think that that is, that is hugely positive. The fact that the Irish language has this power and has this ability to encourage people to engage with education again, even later in life, is something that needs to be celebrated and something that needs to be encouraged further. I think in reference to the specific challenges in, in, in your own area, you know, Bunchkull and your, you know, is a marigold that Bunchkull and your are in the position that they are? They, they, they face very acute problems that are in terms of accommodation. There, there have been an, an unsuitable accommodation for over 30 years now. And, you know, this has been highlighted time and time again. Um, Bunchkull and your are in need of a specific um, accommodation that meets their needs. And, you know, in spite of the challenges they face, Bunchkill and Europe is still a very strong and successful school. And I think that, you know, if we imagine where we could be if some of those obstacles were removed, where we could be in terms of that whole area, we could be talking around the development of a of a standalone uh, post-primary school, for instance, in that area, because no doubt there is interest there, but we need to get the fundamentals right first. We need to ensure that preschool and, and, and primary school are adequately supported, that parents realise that when they send their kids to an Irish medium school in Newry, that they're going to receive the same level of support and same access to high quality accommodation and others than they would if they were sent them to the English medium sector. So I think that, you know, that's a position and I referenced earlier around the, the capitalist, how it was tweaked to reflect the particular needs of area planning, which again, you can understand and in and, and, and many respects we would support, but it, it ignored the reality of what this meant for Irish medium because Irish medium schools can't amalgamate because by very nature of we we educate through the medium of Irish, we can only amalgamate with another Irish medium school. So we were placed at a dental disadvantage because of that uh, change in the criteria and that. And again, that's something that we think needs to be factored in, in the outset so that then when, when, when the capitalist uh, call is made, that schools like Bunchkull and Europe, you know, can uh, honestly uh, and, and, and earnestly apply for that and hope to get the support that, that, that they're no doubt entitled to. Thanks, Justin. Gurma Yogov, Kiron Turlock, or Scratha Kayla, or Nadini. Thank you. Okay, I think that's all members' uh, questions for today. Um, Kieran Turlock, thank you very much indeed for the time that you've given us this morning. Um, hopefully, again, hopefully, once restrictions um, ease further, we'll, we'll maybe be able to pay a committee visit. Uh, to an Irish medium school, um, maybe even the integrated Irish medium preschool in East Belfast. Um, but it'd be it'd be great to 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 have that visit just to get a, an even better understanding of the good work that's going on in the Irish medium sector. But thank you very much indeed for your your time with us this morning, um, both of you. A any final comments or? Uh, we're we're delighted to be here. Um, 
Christopher, we really appreciate the opportunity. I want to thank you know Evie and her staff as well for all their help in getting here. Um, and also you know in terms of that, we would be very very keen to facilitate. I think again when people are able to see things in many respects with their own eyes and speak to the practitioners, speak to the experts on the field. That is the teachers, the classroom assistants, the principals. They're the people that know this uh, stuff inside out. And I think that that would help inform us all and help progress this this debate a little further down the line. Thanks to both of you. Okay, can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove witnesses and add members back into the spotlight and ask the clerk to summarise any actions or requests uh, further to the briefing? Sorry, can we just check that everybody has their devices muted? You're back in the spotlight now. Okay, Okay. Okay, is that us muted? Yep. Okay, Clark. Clark, I think you're muted now too. <laughs> Sorry. Can we can we bring the Clark into the spotlight and make sure her device is unmuted? Okay, I think I'm unmuted now. Is that right? That's you. Thanks, Clark. Okay. Um, thanks, Chair. Um, so there were a lot of issues um, in that in that briefing. Um, everyone, um, two of which came up recently um, about the particular issues of a pandemic on a school community that relies on immersive um, education, and the GTC issue that came up last week about um, having enough teaching resource. Um, especially uh, teachers who are qualified in the Republic of Ireland, um, how they can access um, the roles in these schools, which, which are so needed. Um, the, uh, in respect of area planning, a lot of, a lot of these matters um, relate to area planning. Um, and in ways it's similar, I suppose, to the integrated sector um, where there's a statutory duty to um, facilitate but not promote um, the development of these schools. Um, so the committee is having um, the department come up for a briefing on area planning on the 7th of July. Um, and I think it might be useful to uh, write to the department just in advance of that um, and, and just set up some questions about uh, a bespoke or sectoral approach um, to um, Irish medium education. Um, the the uh, the witnesses also uh, discussed a matter that will be really interesting for your next evidence session this morning, um, which is that the uh, CCA oral exam is going to be omitted, um, or a language exam is going to be omitted um, from exams this year, um, and that obviously has a knock on um, impact on a sector which is so strong in language or language skills. Um, so in particular, they were suggesting that members might ask how that decision um, was arrived at and whether there was consultation with the sector. Um, so they didn't seem to be aware of having um, been contacted about that in advance. Um, the uh, issue then of um, supply of teachers to the sector was quite well rehearsed. Um, and I, I'm not, sure is that a matter for GTC or perhaps just the department centrally about difficulties particularly in post-primary schools of securing teachers in STEM subjects 
Um, so not only um, needing teachers who are qualified in Irish, but teachers who are qualified um, in those uh, those subjects which are so key um, economically. Um, so there's a lack of subject specialists um, and the sectoral plan identifies workplace workforce needs for the sector. So there were calls for specialist um, STEM, PGCE course and dip ed, um, and uplift for the number of places for Irish medium PGCE and dip ed pathways, conversion courses um, for teachers who have Irish language skills, but are maybe not qualified to the um, required standard. And, and the relationship that that has with um, the Convention on Minority Languages. Um, there was also interesting material then about uh, comparative approaches um, in other jurisdictions and how um, bilingual education is supported in the likes of Wales and Scotland, um, Catalonia and uh, the Basque Country. Um, SEND provision was a matter as well, which might be worth um, writing to the EA about members. Um, uh, just in respect of um, siblings being split up because the Irish medium sector can't provide um, SEN resource. Um, so again, a kind of strategic um, blockage there. Um, and and also it was it was cited that um, bilingual education is, is particularly beneficial for children with special educational needs. Um, the resourcing then um, for uh, Early, early years um, interventions. Um, again, you can't get the resources or the professionals, educational psychologists, learning support centres um, with the um, language um, background. And I mean, obviously, some of this is going to be subject to resource, um, but the default position um, in our education system is that Irish medium schools have got these supports and that everyone can understand. And um, there was a specific call actually um, just for uh, the common funding formula to uh, support Irish medium pupils um, to a greater financial level. So per head, um, it's currently £121 per child per year. Um, and the witnesses were commenting that there's a lot of um, disadvantage and lack of resource um, and that they would uh, argue for funding uh, analogous to that of traveller children or newcomer children or service pest personnel. Um, so the, the committee is also having a common funding formula update on the 7th of July from the department. Um, so maybe that's a question to bookmark um, for then. Uh, so that, that's me, Claire. Okay, members content and agreed with all of the information and actions set out? Agreed? Agreed? Agreed. 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 Yes, sure. I, I have to say I really enjoyed that presentation and the honesty of which the two gentlemen approached uh, this today. I thought it was very, very good uh, and reassuring. I, I got some clarification on points raised last week, which I felt were inaccurate last week. And it's interesting that we have witnesses that are making assertions without actually going to uh, uh, seek if it's a fact or not. You know, the, the very fact that there was no approach made um, shows quite a lot, in my opinion. What yeah, this we it's an important, important function of the committee to be able to um, platform different and engage with uh, different representative bodies. 
in the education sector to try and play a constructive role. So I'm I'm glad that was possible as well. And 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 look, I'm sure all of us um, can't wait to be engaging with schools, you know, yeah. in, a, in a more direct way. And and that gives us a gives us a flavour for uh, some of the. Uh, great work that's going on in our schools that we'll be able to engage with in, in due course, hopefully. Chair, I think that it points out as well another reality that really needs to be uh, looked at, uh, and today was a good starting block to that. You know, it is one of the fastest growing se- It is the fastest growing sector, education sector, uh, uh, fast growing sector in education in uh, the, the, in Northern Ireland. And um, uh, when you tap down into some of the real issues from the Education Authority, C2K, uh, ASEA, uh, there, there's real uh, uh, real disparity there that needs to be resolved. You know, that the sector needs more support. And, uh, and in my opinion, from what I've heard today, the support they've received to date is inadequate. And they've managed to make major progress um, with, with, with such inadequate resources and support. So that's a triumph for them. And I have to say, I'm, I'm very, very pleased at how positive that engagement was today. Very, very good. All, all, all similar to the integrated sector as well, and, and hopefully the, the independent review will identify some key actions that can be taken to provide the, the type of support that we've we've heard is is necessary. Uh, sure, can't just need to move us on. Pat? Yeah, and, and it's it's just around the statutory duty, you know, and and I think there's a statutory duty there that clearly isn't being adhered to. Uh, when you see all the deficits in the Irish medium sector, uh, it's 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 clear to me that that statutory duty is being ignored. Uh, when when you see that there isn't even a level plan pitch, let alone extra resources being provided for the unique uh, challenges that arise in the Irish medium sector, and I think it's something that the independent review needs to to, to comment seriously on. Thanks. Okay, members, I'll, I'll move us on to agenda item six and our briefing from SIA, uh, the Council for the Curriculum Examinations and Assessment on this year's awarding arrangements, appeals and contingency plans. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove members from the spotlight and to add our witnesses? Can I also refer members to a clerk's brief and table papers, a briefing paper from SIA at page 27, and welcome Tommy O'Reilly, chairperson of SEA, Margaret Farahar. I've got you listed as director of education, Margaret, but if I'm not wrong, I think you're you're elevated to acting um, CEO at this moment in time. You can correct me accordingly in your in your uh, presentation. Amanda Swan, temporary director of examinations. Michael McCauley, business manager for qualifications. You're all very welcome this morning. And I can advise you that you have up to 10 minutes to make an opening statement, followed by questions from members. Thank you. Okay, good morning, Chair. And thank you for the opportunity to attend today's committee. And I am accompanied by the CA's interim chief executive, Margaret Ifarer, and also, as you said, Amanda, and also Michael. We've been asked to provide a briefing on the three areas that you've covered. But before starting to address those areas, I think it's important to acknowledge that the past 12 months have been extremely difficult and challenging for students and their families. There's no doubt that the mental health and well-being of young people has been greatly impacted by the pandemic, and supporting young people as we come out of the current restrictions will continue to be a major challenge for all of us involved in education. I'd also like to commend everyone involved in our schools and colleges, and in particular our teaching profession for their hard work 
commitment, and patience as they work through these exceptional circumstances. So let's first of all provide an update on the awarding arrangements for summer 2021. Since we last met the committee on the 21st, on 24th of March, we've been supporting the breeding process with a great deal of preparation and support activity to assist centres as they commence the process of finalising the grades in accordance with the head of centre guidance issued by SEA. I don't plan to go into all the details, which I understand has been included in your brief pack. What I can say is that there's been a substantial programme of engagement with school leaders, subject teachers, teaching unions, with a specific objective of ensuring there was a full understanding of how centres were to implement the head of centre guidance. CS staff have paid particular attention to supporting senior leaders in schools, whether that be through social media or, more importantly, the fortnightly principal meetings. There's also been an extensive array of guidance, documentation produced for centres and for individual subjects, which has proved extremely popular, evidenced by the number of downloads from the CEO website. That guidance alongside actual assessments have also been produced in Irish, and they've also been modified to accommodate access arrangements. I can confirm that all A-level and AS centre determined grades were received on time on the 21st of May, with the GCSE grades due for submission this Friday. This will complete the first three stages of the five-stage model announced by the Education Minister in March, and on which the committee had received an earlier briefing on how SIA planned and managed the implementation of the summer 2021 awards. We are further ahead in the awarding process than other jurisdictions, which is a considerable achievement and testament to our teachers' professionalism and dedication during this period of time. The next step of the process, step four, focuses on SIA's review of the centre evidence and grade outcomes before awards are published in August. That will now be our priority for the next three months. The committee also asked us to address the quality assurance of the Centre Determined Grade Policies for this year's awards. I can confirm for the committee that all centres have complied with the requirements set out in the Head of Centre Guidance and submitted their Centre Determined Grade Policies to SEA. Centres have not previously have been required to do this type of report, this type of policy. And to support them, SEA took steps to ensure the process of developing the policy was open, understandable, and the deadlines achievable. Colleagues from the Education Authority and the Council for Catholic Maintained Schools also provided support to SEA, with their school development staff holding meetings with heads of centres to discuss their approach to the development of the centre determined grades. Once submitted to SEA, all of the policies from the 283 centres were assessed against 17 criteria. Worse CS senior staff reviewed identified issues. They followed up with virtual meetings with the head of the centre to discuss the findings, and the centres were then asked to resubmit their policies within 48 hours for a further review. I'm aware that the committee has been provided with information on the main areas which required further work, and my colleagues will be happy to answer any questions. The committee have on this or any other aspect of the quality assurance process. As chair of SIA, I'm pleased to confirm to the committee that all 283 centre-determined grade policies now comply fully with the requirements let out in the head of centre guidance document. Turning now to the post-result service, or more familiarly referred to as appeals in other years. 
It's our hope that with the level of guidance and support that has been provided, that teachers' professional judgments will accurately reflect the standard on which students are performing and the students will have confidence in the grades they've been awarded. However, we also appreciate, as is the case every year, that some students may wish to challenge the grade that has been awarded. To facilitate, there will be a post-results process which will align with the agreed approach outlined in the Joint Council for Qualifications Guidance published on behalf of all the awarding organisations. At a high level, the post-results process will have two stages, with the first stage being a review of the grade at centre level, with the second stage being the student having the right to appeal to SEA as the awarding organisation. The review of the grade at centre level aims to quickly identify and correct any administrative or procedural errors that made by the centre, and in the interest of fairness, the centre will ensure the students have access to all of the necessary documentation and information to allow them to decide whether to request a review. If a student remains dissatisfied, they can appeal to SEA, where our most senior examiners will independently review information provided in support of a student's appeal. One additional point to note is that SEA will be waiving the costs of appeals for the second year running, so no student faces any barriers when engaging with this important process. Given the importance of the appeals, both SEA and the Department of Education agreed it was necessary to gather stakeholder feedback on their proposals for this service. And the most appropriate way to do this was through a public consultation. This closed on the 20th of May with 839 responses received. And I think the committee received the infographics in terms of the outcome of that consultation process. We have also engaged with heads of centres, teachers' unions, NICI, Parenkind, in relation to the appeals process for summer 2021 and received broad support for the proposals. We plan to publish the post results service guidance no later than the 7th of June. There's a lot of detail behind what I'm outlining today, and my colleagues will be happy to provide more detail of the responses and any follow up questions. Turning to the third area, which the committee has asked for a brief, members will be aware that the Education Minister made a statement to the Assembly on the 17th of May, outlining the arrangements for CS qualifications for 21-22 academic year. Central of this announcement is the plan to turn to public examinations for CS qualifications. To quote the Minister, a plan to turn to public examinations is not, however, returned to business as usual. As a result, and mindful of the many challenges and disruptions experienced by our young people, there will be significant reductions in assessments across a range of CA qualifications. I don't plan to talk about all of the changes just now, but just given the time constraints, but perhaps just to highlight some of the key elements. One assessment will be omitted from the majority of GCSE, AS and A level qualifications in 2022. CA will select what's to be omitted to provide a consistent and equitable approach. A student's overall grade will be determined by their performance in the unit or units that they sit. If they choose to sit all of the examinations, they can do so, but there is no obligation to do so. Any student who sits all of the units will be awarded a higher grade for whether all of the units are only at the amount of units. CFA level awards in 2022 will be made on the basis of the candidate's performance in their A2 examinations following. There are many more elements to this process, so please do ask any questions you may have. Naturally, we're also very conscious that the health, the health situation may continue 
to disrupt and change this approach. Finally, Chairman, and I'm conscious of the time, it would be remiss of me not to publicly put on record my thanks to um, the, those of the CA Council, to the staff in CA, for their hard work and professionalism in responding to the challenges that have arisen during the pandemic. They have developed new unique solutions to problems never before faced by our education system. And whilst everything may not have been perfect, the leadership, leadership team and staff have given them their best to deliver solutions that were fit for purpose and always had at their core the interests of our young people. Thank you, Chair, for your patience, and we're happy to respond to any questions or comments from yourself or members of the committee. Thanks, Tommy, and can I echo um, that recognition for CA staff in particularly challenging circumstances and take the opportunity to congratulate Margaret on her appointment as interim CEO as well and, and wish you all the very best in that role. Um, you, Tommy, you helpfully break down the issues into kind of three areas, this year's assessment, this year's appeals process, and then next year. Um, in terms of this year's assessment, I don't want to labour the point because it, we don't seem to have had a, a meeting of minds between most of the committee and the minister and say but um, is there any reflection on any degree of mixed messaging that occurred in relation to what evidence would be used for this year's grade awarding? It, it, it is many of the members' um, assessment that whilst we had social media messaging, ministerial statements, um, videos with the minister and the former CEO of SIA emphasizing the wide range of evidence that could be used for assessment. Um, the the SIA guidance in writing referred to controlled assessment being of higher value and does appear to have led to, at least in some instances, of pretty extensive controlled assessment occurring almost as soon as pupils return to school after a significant period of lockdown. Um, applying significant pressure to them. Do, is there any reflection on that from your point of view? Okay, so Chair, I think what I'll do is I'll give you a, an overview of that in terms of what we're doing at the moment, but then I'd also like to bring in both Margaret and Amanda in terms of more detail. I think from the same perspective, you know, we're in the middle of taking forward the awarding for this year, right? And, you know, there's a lot of work going on, a lot of people, there's a lot of discussion taking place. What we're doing is putting in place a lessons learned process. So we're reflecting as we go through that in terms of each of the stages of what we're picking up. I'm not sure that I want to make a further comment in terms of reflecting right back at this point in time, because I think that will require further work to be done before we get before we come out the other end of that process. Okay. But let me just pick up with Margaret because you know, she's been actively involved on um, Anamanda and with the work with the principals. And with the teachers and with the unions, and maybe she can give you some of the comments around that as well. Okay. Thank you, Tommy. And um, thank you, Chris, for your, your kind comments about the um, interim elevation. Um, yeah, so I think in terms of the SEER assessment resources, um, obviously a lot of hard work goes into producing resources that are high quality. Um, I think our message was consistent in terms of schools and, and colleges being able to use a range of evidence, um, class-based tests, homework, etc. Um, 
But ultimately, uh, I think when schools return from the Easter break, they were keen to use the SEER assessment resources because they are similar um, to past assessment materials. Um, those therefore do give a good sense of how students are performing. Um, it's been a really difficult year with so much disruption. While schools were able to use a range of um, evidence sources, it is important to give students the opportunity, uh, a recent opportunity, to demonstrate whether or not they have progressed. And I think um, school and college leaders were really keen to use the assessment resources uh, with that intention. Um, so I think there were very good intentions uh, behind school and college leaders um, grabbing the opportunity, if you like, um, when, when students return to use the resources. Um, but we have also had the feedback from, from some students that they perhaps found the level of assessment quite intense. Um, and, and again, as Tommy said, you know, that's a point that we can reflect on, I think, if we find ourselves in this position next year. We talk uh, regularly to the principals. As you know, I think we've got the fortnightly update meetings. Um, as soon as we heard that students were feeling a little overwhelmed with the level of assessment, we did give that feedback to them, um, you know, to ask them perhaps to communicate why they were assessing and, and reassure students. So, and, and I do think principals did that, but, um, you know, I, I do acknowledge as well, a lot has happened in a very short um, space of, of time. Um, I think everyone has been uncertain about whether or not there would be further outbreaks of COVID. We certainly had schools telling us they had to close just before Easter and after Easter. So I do think that there was a keenness, shall we say, to get more evidence available to demonstrate um, the progress that students had made to support their grades this year. Okay. I think she's got some helpful information for you. Okay. Yeah, thank you. So we'll, we'll keep moving as well. But thank you. Yes, go ahead. So now we have a chance to actually review the centre determined rate policies. Um, so obviously there were 283 of those. Um, across those, the most referenced assessment is actually coursework and controlled assessment, which was a replacement for coursework for GCSE. And then um, the C assessments and class tests you know, we're, we're also highly used. But it's also important to note that homework um, was actually referenced in 2000, or 223 of those policies, which is nearly 80%. So I think, you know, we're looking at some of the concerns raised at earlier um, committees, you know, it was around um, work done out of school, you know, not being considered. But the review of the policies do show, um, you know, a strong use um, of work that has been um, completed at home. Okay, I appreciate that information and I imagine other members will wish to come in on it as well. So my, my next question in terms of this year's appeals, Tommy, would be why, why are we getting this information so late in the term and what impact has the timing of these announcements had on the nature of assessment to which students have been subjected this year? Well, I think in terms of, you know, whenever we said that they have a set of guidance, we very clearly said that at that time that we were going to be working on the appeals process over the next number of months. So that's what we've been doing. We've been consulting very widely with the profession, but we're also working with other jurisdictions. I mean, and really what we've been trying to do is get the appeals ready so that before the schools close, 
that they would then be available to the schools. And the target date is to get them out this week. And that's what we're trying to do. That's the plan at the moment. So it's almost finalised. I had to carry through the consultation process, and that's now been completed as well. Okay. What 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 is the extent of the pressure that we've put on teachers to deliver in, within these time scales? Um, I think. Do you mean the overall time scales, um, Chris, in, in terms of when the announcement was made to cancel exams, or do you mean specifically? On yeah. The I mean, yeah, the, the centre assessments um, and then working to the appeals process. What, what's the, the nature of the additional ask for placing on teachers in terms of their role in this assessment and appeals process? Um, I, think, I think in terms of managing uh, the assessments, and that was one of the reasons why I think the department was really keen that we provided as many steer assessment resources as possible so that there were available high quality resources that teachers could tailor rather than creating extra resources. So I hope that has helped a little. Um, I think it's been really impressive as we all know that, that teachers have, have risen to the challenge and um, been willing to gather the evidence um, to support the submission of the sense determined grades. And as Tommy said, we are ahead of all other jurisdictions and all the grades came in on time for the 21st of May, which is you know, a fantastic achievement. But it has been hard work for teachers. And I think, um, you know, we, we are very mindful of that, Sia, and we've taken a lot of care in trying to develop the uh, post-results service, the appeals service, in a way that reduces as much as is possible um, any impact on, on teachers, school leaders, and exams officers. Um, so I think, I think the process was probably clear from the consultation that we launched um, earlier in May. Um, but I do hope that when the guidance is issued, hopefully later this week, at the latest the 7th of June, it will be well received. We have had very positive feedback from principals as we've been sharing what the process looks like with them through our principal uh, update meetings, and also the teacher unions and parent time and um, the secondary student union council and okay. the minister okay. made an announcement earlier this week in respect of additional resources for schools and for teachers to help them deal with the appeals process during the summer. Okay, I think it is important though that we recognise the, the the pressure that teachers have been put under in, the, in these unique circumstances and the the titanic effort that has been made to make sure that those fair and appropriate grades are, are secured for uh, the pupils that have been through so much as well. Can I ask what specifically can a pupil do if they disagree with the grade awarded and, and how rigorous will the appeals mechanism be for pupils? Yeah, okay, so, um, so if um, the student is unhappy with their grade, um, we set out, uh, I guess, different reasons as to why they might feel the grade is inappropriate. Uh, so the, the key step is to uh, talk to their centre, explain they do want a review of their grade. That could be on the basis of an admin error, a procedural error, or they're not happy with the grade in terms of um, academic judgment. Um, we've designed uh, a form, which I hope is, is very easy to use and clearly sets out uh, you know, why the student is not happy with their grade. Um, the centre will then undertake a check to make sure 
Um, they haven't made any admin or procedural errors. Um, and, and then, you know, if they may decide that they have made an error and that the grade does need to be changed, if they determine that, you know, there has been no error, um, but the student is still um, dissatisfied, then the process will come to SIA, and then SIA will look at the grounds for the student being dissatisfied with the grades. So that could be because of an admin error, procedural error, or not happy on the basis of academic judgment. I think that's an important change from last year, to be, to be fair, Margaret. Um, the, uh, I'm assisting with an appeal in June 2021 from last year. Um, in, in my assessment because uh, of difficulties with uh, a centre response. So I think that is an important change that students will be able to um, have recourse to SIA in relation to those appeals. Um, can, I, can I ask then, in, in relation to this year as well, why, why grades awarded for AS levels um, will not be included in awarding A2 grades? Yeah, well, I take that yeah, one. Yeah. So, um, thank you for that question because it's really important that um, the message around why we can't do it is out there. So, in a normal year, the marks obtained for AS are combined with the marks um, with A2. You have to give an overall mark um, and grade for A level. So, we considered a range of options in CA um, because if we could have done it safely and fairly, we would have been very keen to do so. The first was to ask teachers to actually award a mark. So if we take AS science, one of the sciences as an example, there are five grades um, to be awarded. So at SEA, I'm really confident that we could have a standardized approach with teachers across those five grades using um, grade descriptors as the mark. And we're starting the review process, and it looks like that is going really well. If we have changed that to say to teachers, I need you to give me a mark out of 240 available marks, there's no way we could have ensured um, any consistency across schools because public exams weren't going ahead and also um, you know, the marking would not have been standardised. So moving on then, secondly, we considered would there be a fair way of estimating a mark for students um, to combine into the grade two. And we looked at using the top of the grade boundary, the middle of the grade boundary and the bottom of the grade boundary. So we discounted using the, the bottom and the middle of a grade boundary because it just disadvantaged way too many students. Um, so the only thing left to consider was using the top of a grade boundary and awarding everybody the highest available mark, you know, within a grade. So we modelled giving everyone the highest mark. However, unfortunately, um, this skewed the mark distribution towards the top end and created a significant grade inflation at A level that wouldn't have been acceptable. So in order to manage the grade inflation, then we would have had to adjust the AB boundaries on the A2 units to bring outcomes in line with what would be reasonable um, and acceptable to regulators. But unfortunately, the way A star is graded, um, because you have to achieve 90% of the overall uniform marks and the grade A overall, um, that actually it had a really negative effect on A-star outcomes and in some subject areas the outcomes of A-star you know, through the modelling would have been down uh, in double figures. So therefore there was no fair way to action um, to action it going forward. So but in finishing you know, the AS grades issued in the summer, they're still you know, worth what they were in previous years. 
you know, from moving on to jobs, university applications, and letting students know how they've got on. So they're still a real grade, they're still worth exactly what they were in previous years. They just can't be amalgamated safely and fairly um, to contribute to the A-level, the overall grade. Okay. I think other members might want to bring that up as well. I, I would I hope that we'll touch on why there's been no omission in the maths GCSE for next year and why speaking has been omitted from language. But I'll, I'll see if other members have an opportunity to ask some of those questions and bring in Deputy Chairperson Pat Shane, MLA. Thanks, Chair. And you've just uh, set me up nicely for my question. Uh, around the omission of the um, oral element in the uh, languages. Um, I, I come to this as someone whose uh, two daughters, age nine and five, are multilingual. Both of them speak four languages uh, each. And, I mean, we, we had the Corley Nagel Scully Act given evidence to the committee just before, before yourselves. And uh, Karen McGillivan, the chief executive, when I put this question to him about the omission of the oral element, uh, responded, well, what's a language without it being spoken? And I suppose the question is, how can you, how can you assess language acquisition if you can't uh, assess the spoken element of it? Um, so I I'd like to hear your response to that. Thanks. Okay, so start, and um, I have a colleague's mum to come in. So, um, so thank you for the question. Um, I mean, I think you know if we reflect back on um, when we held the consultation on the twenty twenty one options to try and you know manage whether or not we needed to look at the exam arrangements. Um, you know, I talked then, I, I guess, with the committee about us being really keen to reduce the assessment burden on students. So I think we're all aware that the students who will be taking their A2s next year, um, you know, they have now missed, you know, two sets of examinations. Um, there's a lot of apprehension and, and nervousness, I think, in the system about taking public examinations. So, I think the overall package of um, admitting units for most GCSEs, AS and A2 qualifications is a really, a really positive step. And I'm, I'm really pleased that um, students, you know, through the secondary um, students union are also very pleased. Um, with languages, it's, it's really difficult because of the structure of the qualification. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of divided into all of its important um, skill areas, so writing, reading, and um, speaking elements. Um, and, and of course, by having the optional omitted unit, it, it is optional. So, um, there is no compulsion uh, to omit the unit that SEER has defined as the optional unit to be omitted, but it is there for students and teachers if they feel they need to draw on that flexibility uh, because of the level of disruption they have had to date or may have um, next year. So it is purely optional. Um, I think as well, when we managed the consultation uh, back, in, back in the autumn, and we did have over 7,000 responses to the consultation, and we had our different subject advisory group uh, meetings, and of course we've been talking with the principal since then about the 
about the different options. Um, you know, it is very difficult, I think, to um, you know, admit any part of a, a subject because all the bits of the subject are in the specification because they are very important. However, we had a lot of feedback um, last autumn about the speaking component of our languages qualifications. Um, the teachers were very um, perplexed about the fact that, that that unit wasn't admitted. Um, there was a lot of concern about the logistical arrangements of conducting um, the speaking element during uh, you know, uh, a health pandemic. Um, and, and I think we need to be careful and ensure that whatever the admissions policy is now, um, that we can stick to it throughout the rest of the year. Uh, you know, teachers and school and college leaders want clarity. Um, they don't want more disruption or change um, in the next academic year. You know, they've had a lot to contend with. I think if the public health situation were to worsen next year, I just don't see how the um, you know the speaking arrangements could go ahead if that were the unit that wasn't admitted. Um, you know, we saw in the south that the oral examinations were the first element to be um, admitted, and uh, you know similar arrangements have been made in other jurisdictions. You know, teachers were very nervous about how they could possibly manage the assessments um, during disrupted remote learning. Um, so, so I think on, on balance, it's very, a very difficult decision to have to admit anything. Um, but also, I suppose based on some feedback, initial reactions from the secondary uh, students' union, who, who did make the point that they hadn't had a chance to, um, you know, get a lot of feedback from, from their members. But they, students often will remark on how stressful uh, the oral assessments are. And I guess the, the admissions policy is really about reducing the stress on the students for this next year, um, reducing the burden on them, supporting their well-being, rebuilding their confidence um, when some of them have had such a long time of disrupted learning. And I, I think just to reinforce the point as well, Margaret, you know, it's the it's an optional mission of the assessment. The whole specification still needs to be covered as far as possible, and that's the same with all of our qualifications where there is an optional omission um, of an assessment. The expectation is that as far as possible, um, that we um, that we actually follow through with that. The other thing that students raised in, in our regular engagement that the most stressful thing for them over the last year has been uncertainty. So we feel that the decision at this stage to give an optional mission for um, the, the, line, the languages orals, you know, is actually providing a level of certainty for students because that would be the unit that would be the most challenging to deliver the assessment for if the pandemic situation changes. Yeah, well, I mean, first, first of all, I mean, I can't understand how you can assess uh, the acquisition levels of a language without listening to it being spoken. And even though you're saying it's optional, uh, I mean, is the assessment going to be um, equal for someone who does go through with the oral element uh, and someone who doesn't? Um, yes, if I come in on that one. So if, if a student um, opts to do all, all of the units, um, they have the option of, of getting 
um, the better grades. So, um, so if for some reason they didn't do well um, in the speaking unit and they they wish they hadn't taken it, um, then they will get the, the better grade. You see what I mean? Of the overall uh, qualification or, or the other units. So sorry, Margaret. Are you saying that uh, someone can opt to take the oral element of the examination, but if they don't do well, they can ask for it to be disregarded? It'll be an automatic thing, Pat. So what we'll be doing for students is we will grade them on the mandatory units, which are the other three units for the languages, and then we will give them an overall grade, you know, including the speaking test, and then we will look across both to see which one is the highest grade. And that's the grade that will be awarded. So the student doesn't have to request it. It'll be an automatic thing done in CA. And um, so the students aren't concerned about um, you know, taking everything if they wish, so that they're never disadvantaged by doing that. So if they do feel able to continue with their speaking assessments, they've got that opportunity next year. But I guess schools um, and colleges wanted clarity now before going into the next academic term about units um, that could be omitted. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm just not uh, absolutely clear on that. So let's just use the Irish medium sector as an example, where immersion in the language is, is part and parcel of the philosophy of the, uh, the system within the schools. And one would expect that uh, pupils who have been through an Irish medium uh, setting would be more proficient uh, in the spoken language. Uh, not always the case, of course, but uh, as a general rule. So one, one would expect them to uh, perform better overall in the uh, oral part of the exams than their counterparts in English medium schools. Uh, so one would expect probably that the results would be better. Would that not be the case? And, and how is that going to be reflected? I'm just wondering also, was there any consultation with the Irish medium sector before this decision was taken? And that, well, the, the consultation um, on potential emissions that happened in August and September of this year, and in, in this academic year, it was a completely open consultation um, with over 7,000 respondents. But I would need to actually go back and double check for you um, if the Irish medium sector, you know, did respond to that public consultation. But there was no, there was no specific approach to the Irish medium sector, given that their whole system is based around the language. Um, no. However, what I can say is it's consistent across the languages. I'll just read you the, you know, the, the what came out of the consultation for Irish, and it was very much the same across German, Spanish, and so on. It was therefore recommended that due to practicalities and to account for changes made in England, speaking should either be removed or reduced. I mean, that was the recommendations coming from the, the people who responded to this consultation. Um, and, and it's similar across um, Irish, um, French, German, Spanish. Okay, fi final, final yeah. comment, Pat, thanks. Okay, uh, uh, fair enough. Um, we'll leave that there for now. I'll maybe come back to it at a later stage. Um, I, I just, I'm seeing some media reports from across the water that would suggest there's going to be a surge of uh, litigation by parents uh, uh, arising from the awarding of qualifications uh, this year. 
Uh, are you confident that we're not going to face uh, similar issues here? Thanks. Um, if I start, um, so I, I think, um, you know, the process that we've designed um, should help ensure that students feel they have fair access to having their opinions heard, you know, if they're dissatisfied uh, with the process this year. Um, I do think it's in, improved on last year, and I'm, and I'm really pleased about that. Uh, we have had positive feedback from parents and um, school and college leaders and students. Um, so, you know, I really hope we don't see um, a huge amount of, of legal cases. You know, I think we've designed it in such a way that it should be easy to follow. Um, you know, I hope it will be an expediated process, you know, that we can get through any reviews this year as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, we, we've certainly set up systems internally um, to ensure that we've got robust processes uh, to manage the process fairly and consistently. So, um, so, so I really hope those headlines don't, don't come to pass. I think the first thing in terms of people deciding to take legal cases against public bodies, there's, in a sense, nothing that we can do to stop that process. All we can ensure is that our procedures and policies have been quality assured from a legal viewpoint as well. And I can assure you that at every step of this process, with both the health centre guidance and also with the post um, rewards processes, that we've been taking them through our legal advisors as well, to ensure that they've been properly proofed from an, um, sort of an equity and fairness viewpoint. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that, Thomas. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. I have uh, five more members with approximately six minutes each per question and answers. So can I bring in Robin Newton, MLA, please? Thanks. Robin, I think we might need to unmute your device again. Apologies. Can I make sure Robin is in the spotlight? Thanks. Uh it wasn't, sir, for some reason it wasn't going on to me. Can I thank the panel for, for being with us this morning? Chair, I have just a few simple questions, uh, I, I think. Uh, and uh, if I could refer the panel to the, their document and the introduction, uh, it's on our page 35 of our document. It's a term that I'm not familiar with, so perhaps they, as a starter they could... Uh, it reads, these changes apply only to candidates who are cashing in at qualification level in summer 22. What does that mean, cashing in at qualification level? Um, uh, thanks for the question, uh, Robert. So it basically means, uh, if you like, kind of banking level qualification, so wanting it to be uh, certificated. Yeah. Um, okay, sorry. I, just I'd never heard the term cashing in before. In in your in 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 where you're highlighting the changes uh, that may be summarised, I think on the one to third point down, should candidates choose to set all units of the GCSE or GCE, they will receive the higher grade from their performance in all units, or in the mandatory units only. Now there's a similar statement referring to occupational studies um, where candidates can omit one unit of their choice from final, final assessment, but should the candidates choose to set all units, 
they will receive the higher grade from their performance in all units or in the mandatory units only. Maybe could you sort of explain to me really what 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 is what will happen there? Okay, so all vocational studies, um, there are a few specifications in that area, and then within that area, there are lots of different units for students to choose from. Usually, students would take two units um, per pathway um, to get their qualification. So, this year, what will happen if a student decides to do everything, we will grade them on the, the one unit, um, which would be their mandatory unit, um, and then we will grade them overall. Um, and then we'll give them the higher grade of the two. But for occupational studies, because there's a lot of optionality within occupational studies, um, either of the unit can serve as being the mandatory unit because we're not defining the, the unit to be omitted. Okay. Are, are we in danger? Are we in danger of, and I know we are in, you know, very difficult circumstances, maybe not even out of the very difficult circumstances, so it is necessary to prepare ahead. But are we in danger of having two-tier qualifications? I think with, you know, occupational studies, occupational studies has really been treated like every other GCSE for maths, where there is an opportunity to omit. Um, a unit, um, with occupational studies, each unit is worth 50%. Um, so, you know, that they are still um, completing, you know, a, a large part of the, the assessment. And I think it comes back to this point again that we have to be really clear about, you know, students are omitting um, optional, it's an optional mission of an assessment. It's not omitting content. So the expectation is that students would still be being taught and still be covering the full content, but they only have to produce, if they choose to, just the one portfolio to send a say instead of two. But again, it's optional. The content has to be covered as with every GCSE. Um, as far as possible, content has to be covered. Um, but it's actually about what we're going to assess them on um, for that specification for occupational studies. I think one I think rather really what we're trying to do is just to take cognizance of the fact that though a lot of these children, all these young learners will be undertaking public examinations for the first time. And yeah. just to reduce that pressure. But if they decide to take the additional element of their examination, we're trying to make sure that they always get the highest reward. So they are and that they're not penalized by taking on the additional units. And that's really that's what we're trying to do. So we're trying to put them at the heart of it rather than necessarily examinations. But we also need to remember no, I... one year only process. Yes. Okay. Can, can I, uh, and forgive me if I've missed it within your document, uh, the Welsh qualifications? Um, sorry, Robin, you're asking about Welsh qualifications. Yes. Yeah. In terms of the current arrangements. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the, the Welsh qualifications are still available. Uh, it's taken in Northern Ireland. Um, I think we were all aware that earlier on in the academic year, um, Minister Weir was rethinking that. Um, and I think that's because back at the beginning of the academic year, there was a lot of uncertainty about what was happening in Wales in particular, um, and with the WJC qualification, 
Um, but since then, uh, WJC has ensured that it has provided uh, reassurance uh, about the qualifications it offers to Northern Ireland students, um, but Northern Ireland students won't in any way be disadvantaged um, in the future, uh, regardless of policy developments in, in Wales. So I think that's a really uh, positive outcome. Yeah, okay. Uh, can I maybe just ask you, in terms of, um, let, let us hope that things continue as far as uh, COVID is, is concerned, that we continue to be in recovery mode, but is it, uh, are we at a stage where there is a plan B for, for next year in the event that uh, we, we don't uh, continue to progress? Um, I think uh, I think the policy around unit emissions is really positive in that it gives schools and colleges a lot of flexibility to manage uh, any disruption next year. Of course, there could be a level of disruption that is even greater than we saw uh, this year. And, and I guess if that were the case, um, you know, the minister might decide that examinations. Uh, need to be cancelled again. Um, I think, based on our lessons learned work, you know, we will reflect on all the arrangements that we put together um, from the point of exams being, uh, you know, cancelled this year. Um, I'm sure there are things that we can, you know, add to the process um, in case exams are cancelled next year. Um, but I do think the uh, optional unit policy does give a lot of flexibility to schools and, and colleges to manage quite a significant amount of disruption uh, next year, should that happen. Um, and I guess even though I think we were all worried about exams happening during the course of the winter when we were seeing a lot of COVID cases, um, you know, I, I think we are all reflecting, aren't we, on the level of, um, you know, work that's involved in an, in an alternative system that doesn't involve exams. So, you know, I think whilst we can put in place uh, documentation that's similar to what we had this year, I'm sure we want to keep in touch with teachers and, and school and college leaders to ascertain what they think is most appropriate based on the experience they've had this year. Uh, again, a second year managing without examinations. Yeah. Okay, Robin. It's okay. Thank you, Chair. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Robin. Can I bring in Daniel McCrossan, MLA? Yes, thank you very much, uh, Chair, and uh, thank you to Tommy, and congratulations, Tommy, on your position uh, and appointment as chairperson. I just want to put that on the record. And thank you to Margaret, Amanda and Michael as well uh, for being with us today. I'm going to follow on from a point raised by uh, the Chair at the outset. And I have to say, I've raised this with the Minister for Education uh, last week uh, as well uh, and the week before. There, there's a number of uh, concerns I have in relation to the uh, appeals process. The very fact that it has not yet been published gives me a huge amount of concern because it has left uh, teachers and school leaders in a very difficult position that they've had to go ahead and award grades and submit those grades uh, uh, without uh, any form, uh, without knowing uh, what evidence uh, would be necessary or what, uh, how could I put this, without knowing what 
without knowing how they're going to be held accountable. So for instance, if a school leader makes a determination on a grade for a particular pupil, they're afraid to do so because they don't know how uh, uh, they're going to be held accountable for that decision. And the reason for that is because the appeals process hasn't been uh, developed, which meant that they had to go for the most strictest form of evidence base, which was continuous examination. So I, I've raised this with the previous chief executive, Justin Edwards, and I've raised this with the minister, and I was given assurances, as was this committee at an earlier stage, that uh, that would not be the case. But yet we're sitting here uh, well past the 11th hour and still no uh, uh, no sign of, of uh, this process. In fact, it's too late now and it's of no value, to be blunt about it, because the reality is that principals have already been put in a very difficult position. So I want to put that point very clearly to you all. Why is there such a delay uh, with this process and why have teachers again uh, been left in a very difficult situation? Okay, so um, you know, thank you, Daniel. And um, as you say, it's, it's you know, all very uh, challenging for, for teachers and school and college leaders on the ground. Um, we have been, if you like, co-developing the process, though, with our school and college leaders and, and through our engagement with teacher unions. So, um, you know, we do hope to publish the process uh, by the 7th of June at the latest. I'm very confident it will be available then. Um, but I do think it's important that the process is right um, and that it supports teachers and, and leadership communities and um, students and it's, you know, to parents. So I do think the consultation um, that we undertook a few weeks ago was important. Uh, whilst we had a lot of great uh, meetings with, with parents and student groups, um, and principals, I think to actually hold a public consultation was important to really reflect on the issues um, that arose last year. Um, so it's been important for us to reflect on the feedback that we've had from the consultation. Um, we are also keen, I suppose, to work with our partners in um, the other jurisdictions to ensure that our process makes sense when it's compared with those of um, you know, other jurisdictions. And, and, you know, we've been really keen to align with the JCQ process as much as is possible. Um, however, I think, as you say, time is progressing. So that's why we've decided we will launch our um, process, our SEA process, um, by the 7th of June to ensure that teachers, students, and parents in Northern Ireland know what the process is. It is early June. Um, and results days are being issued, obviously, um, in August. So we will have a really concerted effort um, once the guidance is produced to ensure that parents, students um, and teachers understand it. I am confident that the principals understand it because we have been sharing it with them through our principal sessions to get their feedback. Um, and we did have, I think, good engagement from from them through the consultation. So I guess as well, you know, in terms of the feedback that we've had from students and parents, we do want to make yeah. sure the guidance is as clear as possible. Can I just interject? Sorry, I, I understand. I get that you're trying to explain this, but with, with the greatest respect, you know, the consultation took place too late in the day. And I do believe that this process being enacted at this point is much too late because grades have already been awarded technically. And they've been awarded on the basis that principals and school and teachers told SIA and told the minister on numerous occasions uh, that they needed to know what the process was so that they could back up the evidential base that they used. That wasn't the case. They were left in a situation where young people once again were being over-assessed 
uh, during a pandemic, uh, where they haven't had face-to-face -face learning, where there hasn't been a level playing field, where some children had access to uh, remote learning and others didn't, where some had tuition uh, at home and others didn't, where some had support at home and others didn't. And as a result of that, uh, regardless of those individual circumstances and the pandemic, uh, uh, school leaders were left in a situation where an assessment was the only form of uh, evidential base that they could use because they didn't know what they didn't know what the appeals process would be and therefore would have left themselves wide open uh, to criticism uh, or uh, review. So that, that's the fault on uh, CS part. I don't want to over-labour this, but I am really frustrated by the fact that we're a year down the line. Hard lessons should have been learned last year uh, and these processes should have been kicked into touch at a very early stage. We all know what the problems were a year ago. It shouldn't have taken to this length of time to get something in place to protect the interests of young people. Uh, and I just feel that see, it still haven't got the street market. That's not a direct criticism of either uh, any of you. Uh, I know Tommy's only very new uh, to this panel, but I I just want to labour this point. We need to start realising the time is of the essence. And to be honest, the appeals process is of no great value now to those children that have been awarded grades, in my opinion, unfairly, given that they've been assessed to the throat uh, by schools without any choice. That's the big issue. I'm going to jump to a question, but I wanted to make that point because it's very important. Um, schools are required by the 23rd of April to submit to CIA a policy outlining the detail of the awarding arrangements for their setting, including details of the evidence to be used to support the holistic judgment to determine grades. CIA was there to qualify was then to quality assure these policies to ensure consistency with the process set out by CIA. So with that in mind, can you tell us, uh, has this operation gone smoothly? Following that specifically, has CIA had to uh, require uh, many schools to rework their policies, and if so, in what way? And finally, will CIA or DE uh, be publishing any form of analysis of the policies and how robust they were determining grades that stood the test uh, stood the test of the appeal challenge or how much exam style testing was a feature of the grading awards. Thank you. Yeah, can I just come in and maybe dump down on your comments about the overall process? And we well, we do really appreciate, I guess, the you know the help and power that we that we get from this committee. But I, I just to make a point very briefly, I mean the process is different again this year, so it is based on evidence, and um, we received the final instruction from the minister on something like the 2nd of March, and then we produced our, our head of centre guidance on, on the 5th of March. So just to reassure you, we are trying to work as quickly as we can um, to provide solid, solid and robust guidance to principals. And, and we developed that guidance document with a group of principals. That is the guidance that I guess principals need to um, ensure that they uh, deliver. That's an important point. I'm sorry for interjecting, but I want to pick up on that point you've just said because that makes great clarification on where we're at. Are you saying that the delay to date, and it's, this is fine to say this because it's important that we know, are you saying the delay to date in the process has been a political one by the minister uh, of the day or, or, or by CIA? Because if you're saying that it took to March for the minister to act, then it's a ministerial problem, uh, that, a problem caused by the minister and indeed not by CIA. Is that, is that what we're saying? I'm not saying that, no, Daniel, I'm saying that we only received the written instruction in full on something like the 2nd of March, and we were ready to publish the guidance on the 5th of March, so we couldn't publish the guidance before that. Um, and, I, and I really, I do, I do totally understand your point about the appeals process, but I don't think it's the case that the appeals process should determine 
how the grades are derived. Um, and the guidance does say that a range of evidence should be used. And I do think principals are settled on that. Um, and I do think, you know, their support and engagement in the fortnightly principal sessions has really helped to ensure that they feel um, comfortable with the process. But, you know, you're absolutely right. Ideally, we would have had everything ready at the beginning of the year, but it's, you know, we were working to, you know, to arrangements that exams were going ahead. Um, and we do need to ensure that the appeals process is fit for purpose based on the fact that it is different to last year. Uh, it is based on evidence. Okay, um, so then let's just pick up there, because it's important that Margaret makes his points in terms of your overall comments, and we'll come back at it. But let's just pick up the points around you've asked about the review of the policies, okay? Because there has been an extensive review of that. And Amanda can give you some information in terms of the number of them through that process. Yeah, we had, you know, 283, um, you know, policies were reviewed. And I think, you know, the, the thing that gives me the level of assurance that the message um, was out there and understood about using different bits of evidence. When you look at, I think you have referenced homework, um, Daniel, in a previous committee um, meeting um, about it being viewed, or there was a perception that it was viewed um, as not being great value, but when we have nearly 80% of schools that has referenced homework in their centre-determined grade policies, that gives me great confidence. I think also, you know, on the aspect of assessment, you know, people should be coming to the brain decisions based on our guidance, our technical Q&As, our subject-specific guidance. And in that technical guidance, you know, we did clearly and explicitly, you know, outline to schools how maybe two pieces of evidence was enough. We even went as far in that technical guidance to outline subjects where the coursework on its own could be enough. And, you know, when we look back at the policies, coursework looks like the most popular reference um, piece of evidence which I would have expected since, you know, students have been working on it intermittently um, throughout the period. And um, the only other thing is, obviously, the appeals process. The appeals process has to be consistent with the guidance that we have already issued. So we can't, um, there'll be no surprises in that appeals process. We can't introduce new things to measure skills against and process against and grades against if it hasn't already been shared under, you know, the guidance and the technical PMS and the subject-specific guidance. Um, you know, Friday is the deadline for schools getting their GCSE and occupational studies grades in. They're making great progress with over 65% on the system now. Um, but for Monday, you know, we will have template policies for schools to try to reduce the burden on what they have to do. You know, we will have specific guides for students and parents to make sure the process is really clear. We are developing multiple um, little templates and checklists to make sure the admin burden, especially for students, um, isn't there. So we are doing everything that we can to make sure that it is as smooth a process um, as possible. So we're at danger of running way over time here. So Daniel, you've got time for one last question, please. Yeah, Amanda, you, you made a very critical point about the eighty percent of the state of that in their policies, and, and and I welcome that wholly. The issue I have with that is that within the CA's own guidance, it said that that would be uh, low quality evidence, which made uh, caused a huge amount of anxiety amongst the teaching workforce as to whether or not they should or should not use it and what uh, way they're going to be challenged in that regard. But I have a point I do need to make, and I want to get to it here, uh, Chair. Um, it is well known, uh, it's a well-known fact that the effects of the pandemic have had a disproportionate effect on some groups of children, young people from socially disadvantaged backgrounds, and made this point continually, and children who have had poor to no internet access to the name but a few groups, 
the mitigations put in place by SEA to enable schools to award grades have treated all children as if the debilitating effect of COVID and the result, resultant lockdowns have been equal in effect, which is not true. With that in mind, to see accept that not all children have been affected to the same extent by the effects of COVID-19. Can you tell us why you're treating all children the same way when uh, equity, not equality, is what is needed? And a final point, will here be running checks on the grades awarded to identify particular groups of children have suffered disproportionate grade reductions by current awarding systems? So in short, will children that have had no internet access come from from disadvantaged backgrounds be treated uh, the same or differently? Okay, thanks for that, Daniel, and I'll take the answer and then I'll bring in Nicola Brogan, MLA. Thanks. Okay, uh, thank you, Chair. Um, yeah, I think uh, there's been a lot of flexibility given to schools and colleges uh, this year. So, uh, you know, in addition to examinations being cancelled and, and the process around, uh, you know, teachers uh, being able to use a wide range of evidence to determine the grades, um, the policy around unit admissions, which was agreed earlier, was, was also still you know, in place. Um, and I think that goes further possibly than other jurisdictions. Um, and in addition to that, you know, it was very clear that, that teachers could um, focus their assessments only on the content that was covered. So you know, even going beyond unit admissions, if that was necessary because of the very um, circumstances um, some uh, schools and colleges may have faced in terms of their student cohort. So, so I do hope all of those things um, help ensure uh, that students who faced you know, particular challenges around access to technology, um, issues around remote learning, um, are not disadvantaged this year. I do, I do hope and think everything has been put in place to try and um, help them this year. Okay. Barbara, sorry, can, can I come in there just on that point? Um, just to in, in the paperwork, Daniel, that we have provided to schools um, in our process for heads of centre, there's a document called the candidate assessment record and schools were actually free to use it to document where there was variation um, in the arrangements for a particular pupil because of the challenges they face. And I think on Margaret's point, you know, maximum flexibility was in place to account for disruption this year, and it could have been used for all manner of reasons. As long as a justification is provided, we were happy for schools to make the most of that flexibility. And I think on a, on a personal level, like myself, Amanda, Margaret, for example, have spoken to schools to deal with individual issues, to try and talk them through the process and ensure that they are given the right advice and guidance on how they can accommodate children who, for example, have suffered more than most during the pandemic. Okay. Um, so okay. the process has worked to a degree. Okay, I have to stop us there. We're, you're, you're, you're way over time. Um, can I bring in four of them for being here today? And for all CS staff, I know he's working hard in difficult circumstances. We do. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks, Nicola Brogan, MLA. Nicola, I think you're muted. Can I check that Nicola's been brought into the spotlight and is unmuted? Can you hear me now? 
Yes, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Chair. And thanks to the four of you for coming this afternoon. And Daniel's right, it has been a very difficult year um, and your job isn't easy, but it is your job at the end of the day and it is our job to, I suppose, hold you to account and to double-check the decisions, you know, and to speak on behalf of families and um, teachers and children involved in this. So I would like to go back to a point that the chair initially raised about um, AS exams and CS decision not to include them with A2 awarding. Um, now, I know that opinion is going to be divided um, around this here, that many young people will actually um, say that they prefer that their decision, given the disruption they've, they've experienced throughout COVID and, and with their learning throughout COVID. But so many students and families um, are really disappointed and the number of parents have been in touch with me who are really furious about this decision for two reasons. The first being because the children have done so much work and effort in their AS um, um, learning, you know, um, and trying trying to make sure that their grades that they kept their grades up, and also um, because of the pressure, then leaves them under when they're sitting their A two. So everything is on the A level um, exams at the end of seventh year instead of being broken up, um, the way it was intended. So you accept that there that is a, a, an additional pressure um, on our young people, um, and as I say, I know that opinions will be divided. But I think it's really important that we address that there for all those families that um, are so disappointed and concerned about the additional pressure on their children. Yeah. Okay, shall I um, start? So, um, so thanks, um, Nicola. Um, I mean, I, I think it's important to remember that the AS does provide the important underpinning knowledge, understanding and skills for the A2. So all the learning that and hard work that students have put in this year won't go to waste, you know, will be really helpful in terms of their um, actual performance uh, in the A2. I mean, Amanda might want to say a bit more in a minute about, you know, if we had used those AS marks, it just wouldn't have been fair in terms of the impact upon students who are at different levels of a grade. Um, and, and actually could have made it harder to get, you know, grades next year in the A2 because the grade boundaries could have been pushed up so hard. And I think that would have been really difficult for those A2 students after all um, the disruption that they had encountered. So, um, so, so I do think it is the fairest decision, you know, not to allow the AS um, to contribute. I think on the other point about students and parents feeling uh, perhaps demotivated and disappointed, um, we have produced an animation which I, I, I do think students who have watched it do feel on having um, seen the presentation, they do understand the issue better and they agree with the approach. So we will do a bit more to ensure that that video is pushed out to, to parents and, and students. And I think the only other thing maybe to, to flag is that, you know, though those AS grades are still an important achievement, um, you know, they, they do go down on UCAS application forms and, and on CVs in years to come, you know, as an additional achievement. Uh, lots of students might be taking a fourth AS and, and you know, planning to, to go down to three. So it's still a really important acknowledgement of that, you know, fourth subject area. Also, I, I guess um, there's a lot of research from UCAS that shows that when students are given unconditional offers, um, which is perhaps a subject for another day. Um, you know, students do tend to sort of take the foot off, off the gas, perhaps, and you know, and not really apply themselves in terms of their full potential. So, 
Um, so I do understand that some students are, will be disappointed uh, that, the, that the grade won't count towards their A2, but I do still think that you know, all their hard work uh, this year has been important and, and will pay off in terms of their A2 and in terms of how they're regarded, in terms of having completed an AS. I hope it will pay off for them, but I, I can't. Um, I, I fully, I can understand how why so many are so concerned about that there and the pressure they're under to perform um, one set of exams. So, as much as you say that AS um, will still contribute to it and that UCAS um, will still, you know, look at that and it can be added to the CV and stuff. We all know that the real um, pressures will be on the A2. So I, I do have real concerns for for the, those um, young people going through that there, to be honest. Um, I want to move back then to um, a point that you discussed with Pat Sheehan about the removal of oral exams for languages. To be honest, I still don't understand it, despite how you try to explain it to Pat, um, the reason behind it. I know you said that some teachers were concerned about the safety of oral exams, um, but I'm not sure exactly what, what actual engagement you've had with them, just um, apart from that open consultation you mentioned. Um, I'd also think that I know you said the part of it was because of the children find it stressful, but that kind of goes against the point there about the two exams and the additional stress there. So it's not really balancing up. So maybe you could just try and explain that to me again, please. The reason behind removal of the oral exams. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think I think students do find oral exams stressful. So so that is that is a kind of an additional point. You know, connected to oral exams. Um, Sorry, but my, my point there was they also will find uh, the whole A level um, exams pinned on final exams in A2 been very stressful as well. That, that's kind of the point I'm making there. Yeah, no, I take the point. I think, though, as I said, we spoke to the secondary uh, school union on Friday, they said they found the oral exams, if you like, extra stressful. So I think. Um, that's because they're going to put on the spot there and there. And they're performing so I think there is that kind of heightened level of um, anxiety. Um, so, I mean, you know, the consultation was quite significant back in the, the beginning of this academic term. Um, I think we mentioned that we had 7,000 respondents. We did also hold our subject advisory uh, group meetings. So, um, you know, um, and when it was decided that they were at that point and later on in the year, when the minister did decide that some units would be omitted from some subjects um, of GCSE, the decision was not to omit the unit from the languages, um, but instead to have an endorsement. Um, you know, we had a lot of feedback from teachers that they were um, not satisfied with that approach. But they were very worried about the logistical issues in terms of managing um, the public health issues and arranging assessments of speaking. Um, so, you know, I, I think we have to be aware that, you know, if we do see further disruption later on in the year, in the next academic year, it would not be feasible to have the oral assessment. So, you know, either we, you know, there's an option not to have anything as an optional assessment at this point in time, um, if we were to have other things as the optional assessment units, you would then have too much being omitted from, from languages, which would mean it wouldn't have any credibility or, or kind of portability in terms of um, students progressing 
you know, onto other, you know, courses and, and universities and, and other jurisdictions. So I think that could be quite dangerous. Um, so I think I think the idea of having an optional unit admitted that is the oral unit um, seems to be the best course of action in terms of the fact that we are in a you know a still you know risky and unknown um, situation in terms of the pandemic. Yeah, I agree with that, Margaret. But I, I, what I don't understand is why it's not the written aspect or the listening. Um, whenever we heard, as Apache said, we heard from Coralina Gilskoliakta earlier that the spoken part of any language is the most important thing, and that that's how you're going to learn the language and be immersed in it. So th that's really the, the question I'm asking there. So apart from the additional stress for students, what what other reasons are behind it? Mar Margaret, do you want me to come in on that one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Nicola, look, look. Thanks for that. I, I, th I think as well, it's just important to go back even to the consultation that we had in September last year. Our initial proposal was that there wouldn't be any omissions from languages at all because there was no consensus about which unit should be the one that students should be allowed to omit from final grading. Now there was there was um, a huge um, outcry as a result of that. We then moved to put forward proposals for an endorse uh, for an endorsement, and that unit was aligned with the arrangements in England and Wales. But it just I think in terms of immersion in the spoken language, we are still absolutely clear that schools should still be developing that skill with students. It's not a case of them being able to ignore it because the assessment um, doesn't have to be sat. That assessment will still be available to them, and we were we are absolutely encouraging them to ensure that that skill is still developed within the classroom setting. Each of the skills that is offered in a languages qualification, they're all equally valuable. There is absolutely no doubt about it from us as an awarding body, and we are absolutely encouraging schools to ensure that each one of those is developed fully over the course of the next academic year. All we are saying is you do not have to do the assessment in one of those skills if you do not wish to. And I think that's particularly because we aren't sure what the public health situation will be like over the next 12 months. So I think it's a prudent decision from our point of view. And I think it has been misrepresented in the public um, context. It is absolutely not a case of us saying, do not teach or develop those skills. We absolutely want that process of developing the spoken word to continue in all of the language qualifications that we offer. No, I appreciate that, Michael, and you're right. It certainly shouldn't affect the learning, but there still are questions around that there, without a doubt. But listen, um, I really appreciate the four of you coming here today and for your time. So thank you, and thank you, Chair. Thanks, Nicola. Can I bring in Justin McNulty, MLA? Thanks, Chair. Thank you to the panel, Tommy, Margaret, Amanda, um, and Michael. Um, just want to further probe that issue just discussed in terms of the AAS level piece not contributing to the final mark. Um, and I think, Margaret, you said that uh, some students will be disappointed. I think that's the understatement of the morning, Margaret. Um, some students are, some students' mental health has been impacted by this because they've been so diligent and so uh, proactive and so studious about their own education. And then all of a sudden they're told that all their work is going to be discounted. Um, I just, I just, I wanted to understand the rationale. G give me a clear understanding of the rationale of that decision. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, do I know Amanda wants to come in because um, uh, Amanda developed the, the animation, which I think tries to explain the technical issue as to why it would be unfair for students to have the AS count this year when we don't have a mark. Um, but, but I guess just to reiterate, you know, Justin, you know, I, I do think that the students who have watched the animation, uh, and we certainly spoke to a group of the Nikki Youth Panel uh, and the Stepping Schools Union, um, you know, they do understand the issue when, when, they, when they watch the video. So I think it's maybe incumbent on us to ensure that more students, you know, any students who are worried or who feel disappointed, that we, you know, reach them and ensure that the, the message is, is better understood. So we'll certainly take an action um, to ensure that we work with, with the principal group to do that. I, I do think that, you know, and hope that they pushed out the animation as well to help explain the point, but I'll let Amanda come in on, on why it's unfair to come up with, a, with an arbitrary mark and the impact that would have on grade boundaries next year in terms of making them too high. I mean, when we approached it just from a very open perspective in that, you know, we want them to do it, if it is a safe and fair way to do it, but once you move into an area where you're estimating a mark for a candidate um, in order to pull forward, it has to be the right mark and it has to be fair. And there is no way to ensure that um, going forward. The students who have had that explanation detail have understood it. Um, and you know, we're grateful for it. And I suppose um, our big challenge now is making sure that students you know, really do understand why it would have been unfair and potentially disadvantaged a pilot them. And if anyone has any other suggestions about how we can get that message out there, you know, wider and better to reassure students going forward, you know, the animation's there. Um, but if there's anything else that we can do to help you know, explain that, um, then you know, we're certainly happy to do that. So, so Justin, which part do you not understand? Which part are you, are you looking for clarification around? Well, I just, I just don't understand the rationale by which you would decide university to say these exam marks do not contribute to their final mark. So if you take that this year at AS, they're not being given a mark, they're simply being given a grade, right? And that grade has got a range of marks within it, okay? But next year, whenever they do their A-levels, and they do the exams, they will get a mark. You can't combine a grade and a mark together to get an overall grade. So you have to have two sets of marks. So for the AS this year, whenever you give them a grade B, what's the mark that you carry forward? Now, as Amanda outlined earlier on, you can set the mark arbitrarily at the bottom, or in the middle, or at the top of the range, right? But all the students must get the same. The problem is if you put it at the bottom of the middle, it impacts negatively on the biggest cohort of students. And if you put it at the top, it drags all of the grades up. And that's unfair as well. Okay? And they did have to adjust the grades later on. So all we came to the conclusion was in overall terms, it's unfair to try to carry a grade into next year's exams whenever the students are getting marks. And that's really what it comes down to. So whenever you want to look at the video, it explains that, and that's whatever the students seen that and understood that, they realised there would actually be a fur on them for if we did if we brought the ASs into the A levels for next year. I, I need to see that animation. Please, it's very simple. It's very it's, it's very very good video to watch and it explains it very easily. So it does. I didn't do it justice.
Okay, thanks, Tommy. Tommy, has there been any objection from school principals on the new arrangements? Probably it's probably early. It's probably early. Yeah, we going to be in next week, isn't it? Yeah, next week's our next principal session, so that's where we take most of our feedback. Yeah, I think I would say. I mean, they were very keen to understand what was what the policy was going to be for for the next academic year. So I think they are pleased that the decision has been made. That the minister has made an announcement, um, and I think they. You know, based on all the discussions we've had during the course of the year, you know, since the summer of last year, you know, it was the principals that came up with the idea of, of unit admissions. Um, so I think they are very pleased that this policy um, has been introduced because it will give them the, the time and the space to rebuild students' confidence, uh, ensure all the important knowledge, understanding, and skills within the specification are taught whilst reducing all the time they spend supporting students in terms of assessments for exams, um, you know, at the end of the year. So I, I think I think they are pleased with it. And, and just remember, I mean, this committee was very helpful in providing CL a lot of encouragement to consult widely with the education sector. And, you know, the SEAL team have spent this last year working extensively with the unions, with the principals and also with teachers. And really understanding all of these issues. You know, and there's been that continued dialogue. This has not been decided solely within SIA. There's been extensive consultation with the profession on all of these issues. Okay, what, what were the lessons learned from 1920 brought forward into 2021, 22? So, and as you know, there was a major report carried out in the, what happened last year by Deloitte, right? And we had a series, we had a whole action plan which were developed in terms of things that CN needed to do. So we've been working through that in terms of all of those actions. And matter of fact, we're meeting with the Department of Education next week to review the progress. I mean, we've got an extensive list of actions. A number of those have all been completed, right? A number of those are ongoing because we're in the current awards season, as to say, and so we're still working through that. But certainly in the issues around the lack of communication, the lack of system design, we've, we've incorporated a lot of those into the awards work that we've done this year. You know, and, and so that document is there. We provided a copy of the, the earlier version to the committee. And we're happy to provide an update as to where we are, you know, after our meeting next week with the Department of Education, if you find that helpful. Okay. Yeah. In terms of fairness and opportunity, final question, in terms of fairness and opportunity, which ultimately this is all about, creating fairness and opportunity for young people to develop and to move forward in their education journey, educational journeys, has, has the uh, structures, has this worked and will it work going forward or when we, as we are uh, emerging from this pandemic? What's your assessment of that? And um, how are CCA, how's morale and CCA in terms of how the dress, the every other through this process, how are things there? So two two final quick questions, please. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I got the first one. Uh, so you dropped that in there just yeah, there, just, just the end. Did you just repeat Sorry, the first question was, um, how, are you providing fairness and opportunity for the, for children and young people as they progress their education system through this through the structures created as part of the awarding mechanisms? And second part was, um, what is the, the morale like in CCA with the dress that they have experienced over the last year or, or two? Yeah, okay, so if I, if I deal with the first question first, uh, 
Um, so, you know, I think, I think like the overall five-step process, if, if, if you meant for this summer, Justin, you know, has been designed, um, you know, with, with the best of intentions to ensure that there is fairness for all learners, and I, and I really hope, um, you know, students feel that when they get their grades and they'll be pleased with their grades. In terms of 2022, I think by having units submitted that are defined by SPEAR, that's another thing that is supporting fairness uh, for students going into the next academic year. Um, and as I had said, you know, giving them the space and time to rebuild their confidence and feel like no matter what level of disruption they had this year or may encounter next year, uh, that they've got a good opportunity uh, to do well in, in assessments next year. Um, in terms of morale at SEA, I mean, obviously, we went through a lot last summer um, in terms of, you know, managing uh, exams being cancelled at very short notice um, and then changes in the arrangements as to how grades were issued. Um, but I would say that from last summer, you know, uh, you know thanks to, to teachers and principals and the teacher unions, um, and other groups who have been really willing to engage with us and work with us um, and help develop the arrangements that we've put in place for this summer um, and indeed for next year. You know, I think there is a lot of, um, you know, goodwill and, you know, I, I, I think senior colleagues feel that, you know, we've done as best as we could under the very difficult circumstances that we faced this year. You know, I think Justin, when he last appeared, did talk about the fact that we've had three major um, policy changes uh, this academic year. But I guess, you know, CS staff have been doing the best for teachers and learners. And at each of those points, we've tried to, um, you know, uh, grapple with uh, the challenges and ensure that we provide the best information that we can to, to teachers, uh, students, and parents. So it has been difficult, but. You know, I hope we, you know, I hope teachers and students and parents think we've we've done a reasonably good job despite the circumstances. I think just from as from a chair of council perspective, I'm only here three or four months now. What I would say to you that in coming in, yeah, what I've been impressed with is really the enthusiasm and the commitment of the team. I mean, this team has really been really deadline driven in giving this work. So closely around the exam seasons at the moment, that's the real focus. And there is a real drive in this organization to make sure that we're doing things which are fair, you know, which are in the best interest of children, and really that we can deliver this year's awards without these allow these children to come out the other side of the pandemic without another sort of impact on them in terms of not having their exams. So I would say morale is pretty good in terms of staff that have been in the record with. You know, and hopefully the way things are going at the moment, hopefully that will that will move forward as well over the summer. Okay, thanks, John. Thank you very much, Grace. Thank you. Thanks. Can I bring in Morris Bradley, MLA? Morris there. Okay, uh, just just as we're checking whether Morris has connectivity there or not, um, can I thank uh, everyone at SIA? Can I also maybe just ask a very short final question? Um, if, if SIA has given students the option to omit oral language assessment, why is there no option to omit any element of maths GCSE? 
Sure, Chair. Um, so um, the, the committee hit all of the, the uh, points that it had been interested in over a period of time. Um, I think given the committee's interest in the use of assessment um, resources in this um, five-step plan, um, it would be useful to ask, say, for side of the review of policies um, that it has collated um, from the centres. Um, okay, the, the, uh, the post-results process then, or appeals process, um, you know, it is unfortunate that the committee has been pressing for that for some time, um, and now it isn't yet published, um, and the witnesses said that it would be at the latest 7th of June. Um, although there is sharing with principals and, and consultation along along the line, so probably worth just reiterating that you know the committee would like to see that as soon as possible. Um, the uh, witnesses referred to additional resources that were allocated um, in support of all of this um, uh, change management. So I think we can um, ask usefully ask for detail about that. Um, I think members really exhaustively uh, queried the issues about the oral exams, um, the, the idea that principals came up with of, of unit omission um, to give some clarity to schools in advance about you know what elements can be omitted. Um, and as the chair says, the we will look to the animation then to um, provide some more clarity about the AS and A-level um, marks and grading issue. Um, the YJEC uh, concern that members have had for a while where they had ongoing um, correspondence with the minister about decisions in relation to the Welsh board, that has come full circle and that was addressed today. Um, the, uh, yeah, the witnesses also said that they will provide an update um, on lessons learned um, and ongoing actions after their meeting next week with DE. So um, I think we can we can write that into um, our correspondence and just pin that down. And the other action that I would suggest members is that you might wish to hear again from union stakeholders, um, you know, just to kind of copper passing perspectives on, on um, all of this. Um, the, uh, there is room in the programme for an informal meeting on a Tuesday morning. Um, that's one way that you might address it. So that's all I have, Chair. Thanks, Clark. Members content to agree those proposed actions? Agreed. Agreed. Thank you. Okay. Would, you would you accept an apology? I need to move on. So thank you. Thanks, thanks, Robin. Um, if, if other members can stay with us to retain quorum, we just have to discharge correspondence and forward work programme briefly here. Clark, can I ask you to speak to correspondence? Yes, indeed, Chair. Um, members, on page 62 of your packs, there are 18 items of correspondence and a summary note is also included at page 64. So just among those items, I would highlight um, item 73 on page 72 which is a response from the department regarding the DE budget um, for 21-22. Um, that is following up on the oral briefing that the committee had with officials on the 28th of April, 2021. Um, now, as I mentioned, uh, 
before we started actually and uh, next week in the chamber there will be a, a debate on the supplementary estimates on the 7th of june and on the 8th um a debate on the budget so members will want to refer to this material um in their in their co contributions in the chamber um, other than that are you content members to forward this response to the committee for finance who's collating returns agreed thank you um, item 7.4 on page 98 is a response from the department regarding guidance uh, that DE provides on addressing oversubscription at schools. Um, this was uh, in relation to uh, a query about an individual school and we asked for the kind of position on the general policy issue. Um, so members, if you're content, you can take that uh, reply up with DE officials on area planning um, at your meeting. Um, later this month, I think it's actually the 7th of July, the area planning one. Um, well, yeah. I, was in, I was in relation to St Bernard's Primary School, yeah. It was, it was. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, um, we'll also, if you're content members, um, forward the response to the correspondent who initially wrote in um, about that issue. Agreed. Thank you. Um, item 7.5 on page 102 is a response from the Education Authority uh, to the committee's request for further information um, after the authority's last oral briefing to the committee. Um, so the, a report providing an overview of um, school placement positions by council has been provided um, and EA is going to return to us with um, some additional information um, by the 14th of June. Um, so are members content to note that response pending um, the, end, the, the final piece? Yeah, it, will that be uh, EA or with us that can speak to these matters in June as well, Yavin, is that right? Or is it uh, DE? DE? It's DE, yeah. Okay. All right, we'll, 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 we'll take it from there then. Sorry, we're going to try to have both, but at the moment DE is confirmed. Okay. Okay, uh, thank you. So um, item 7.6 on page 108 is correspondence from Chris Little in his capacity as an individual MLA um, informing the committee that, the, that he has issued a public consultation on proposals um, for a PMB to remove the exception of teachers from the Fair Employment and Treatment Order Northern Ireland. It's a strange to write to um, myself and colleagues, but I understand it's a requirement of the process and genuinely as well, it would be great if, if members and, and parties were, were able to respond to that survey. It's a very straightforward survey. The link is provided and the, the closing date is uh, only just over a week away on the 10th of June. Thanks, Clark. Thank you, Chair. Um, item 7.8 on page 123 is correspondence from the Assembly's Clerking and Member Support Office um, and that's to advertise to online training sessions um, on protecting your social media reputation. Um, those are being facilitated by the Assembly as part of its member development programme. Um, so members, are you content to note that? Agreed. Thank you. Um, item 716 um, is correspondence from an individual on a range of issues, um, on, including an external independent review of education, uh, the New Decade New Approach Agreement, and a parental vision for the future of education in Northern Ireland. Um, members, do you have any views 
on what actions you would like to take with this with this item? Yeah, I, I guess some of the content of the item, Clark, is to suggest that the committee take the opportunity to invite the new chair and panel members of the independent review once they've been selected, and that that would be fairly normal practice for us to undertake that course of action. So, um, yeah. happy to respond to the individual to thank them for their correspondence and to um, suggest that. We, we would indeed be taking an opportunity to engage with the chair and panel members of the Independent Review of Education once they've been appointed. Members content? Agreed. Thanks. Thank you, Chair. Um, item 717 is a response from an individual um, regarding a response from SIA to a complaint regarding the timing of the appeals process. Um, this is a bit of an historic one. Um, and so you have referred the correspondent to NIPSO. Um, so members, as we don't, um, as the committee doesn't have a role in um, individual cases, um, are you content to respond to the correspondent outlining that and also referencing NIPSO as a potential um, pathway? Yeah, and I think we could advise as well that MLAs are entitled to assist constituents with NIPSO pathways. So if, if, if you want to suggest to the individual that um, she might want to contact her local MLAs for assistance with that process as well, but it, that's not something that the committee could assist with as a, as a collective. Sure, but an MLA can sponsor, you're quite right. Exactly. Uh, just, just so it doesn't, well, obviously we're not wishing to, and not be helpful, but it would be in a, an MLA individual capacity that that would happen. Exactly. Thank you. Um, item 719 on page 169 is a response from an individual seeking further information on school transport for children um, with special educational needs. Um, the, the committee has already um, conveyed some of these concerns on behalf of, of this correspondent. Um, and, but there's a bit of anxiety about having arrangements in place uh, before the summer break, which is um, not unreasonable. Um, so members, are you content that we write to EA seeking an update on its engagement about transport and transition arrangements for said yeah. pupils at the school? Yeah. Great, thank you. And other than that, members, if you're content, we'll dispose of the correspondence um, as per the summary note at page 64. That's great. Okay, members. Just one quick one on correspondence to the Sexy Awareness event, which we were invited to. Um, I know that's not going to be possible for everybody to attend that on the 13th of uh, June in Port Rush. Um, I just ha I had a send, especially educational needs event there a number of weeks back where there was representations from the Sexy Awareness and I, and um, it's a really big problem for so many children and families. And I just think it would be useful if we advertise that as a committee that event is taking place because it could be very important, very comforting for families to be able to access that or to attend it as, as appropriate. Yeah, if we could, if we could post details of that maybe on the um, the committee Twitter uh, yeah. and social media sites. That's uh, Sunday the thirteenth of June in Port Rush at the Awareness NI. Um, yeah, if we could, if members are content, we could post some details of that. Um, the other. It reminds me as well, Justin, we also received correspondence from uh, the BT group uh, directing our attention towards an initiative um, to coincide with the UEFA Euro European Football Championships this summer. 
um, which is called Hope United. Um, it's a, a collection of um, for professional footballers drawn on their own experience of online hate um, and providing resources to help people uh, tackle uh, online hate. Um, so again, if members wish to promote that via their, their social media channels, uh, there is uh, materials there uh, suggesting how they could go about doing so. So yeah, just worth highlighting those two particular pieces of correspondence. Thanks, Justin. Okay, um, and also, I think it was last week's pack, there was a um, a letter from a dyslexia organisation who were looking for an MLA to sponsor a private member's bill um, about, I think it was mandatory dyslexia awareness training. So Okay, I'm just yeah. I'm wondering maybe is it, would it be worth um, when when Ford Work Programme permits, and maybe that takes me on the agenda idea at Ford Work Programme to schedule maybe one of our informal briefings with um, dyslexia organisations. If you had last week's um, dyslexia correspondence and dyslexia awareness, and I am conscious it's a it's a particular area of concern. Um, Clark, maybe um, if members want to have a. I uh, think about that and we can return to that uh, in next week's forward work programme and to see if maybe it's worth um, having some particular engagement with organisations re representing that particular area. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thank okay. You. That takes us to agenda item eight then, forward work programme. Do you want to speak to the forward work programme? Yes, um, members, your forward work programme is at page 175 of the pack. Um, you'll already be aware that um, the Youth Engagement Zoom event will take place tomorrow evening, so that's 6pm. Um, the uh, Education Service has been consulting a range of focus groups on your behalf um, on the same topic of um, life and uh, learning in lockdown. Um, Additionally, then, members, the Red Cross has offered to facilitate an engagement, um, a youth engagement in the same terms um, on the committee's behalf, and they will do that in Refugee Week, which is the 14th to the 20th of June, um, and they'll bring in all of the uh, translation and interpretation um, assistance that are required, that's required for that. So we'll be able to use that as part of um, the committee report as well. Um, uh, the deadline for the art project um, has been extended until the 18th of June, so um, that gives more of an opportunity for young people to contribute and for the assembly to promote it on social media. Um, so the work plan now shows all scheduled meetings up to assembly summer recess on the 10th of July. Okay. Um, yeah. thanks, so much, thanks so much for all that work that has been going on in relation to the youth engagement. Evening, um, can I just just to summarise that briefly, members? Obviously, the committee has made it a real priority to engage with and listen to children and young people, and I think we've developed a, a good reputation and a good record in that regard. We've, we've engaged with the Belfast Youth Forum on RSE, the Secondary Student Union of Northern Ireland on exams, Pure Mental Crisis Cafe on emotional health and well-being, and the the Children's Commissioner children's panel on a wide range of issues. So this is really about ensuring that every ch uh, child and young person has an opportunity to engage with us. Um, we've got our youth engagement event tomorrow night. Please do all you can to make that and promote the art project as well, which I think is a, is a reasonably creative way to try and encourage children and young people to communicate with us about what impact 
um, lockdown has had on their life and learning, and and they can do so in a, in a variety of different ways. Then, um, Clark, if you could you know communicate with members, best ways for us to promote that art project, um, maybe the committee uh, Twitter account and social media accounts could post some of those details for us to retweet. Um, I think it'd be really good to finish um, this. Uh, term strongly in terms of our our engagement with children and young people, given uh, the Department of Education is the department for children and young people. Members content with that approach? Yeah, Chair, I, I believe that there's a group who are um, uh, composing some music as well. Uh, that, uh, of their own bat, <laughs> they've been inspired. So. I, th I think that's brilliant. You know, the, like I said, the Department of Education is the executive um, department for children and young people. Um, we're the committee for children and young people, and, and we want to uh, engage as best we can and then showcase those experience, platform the voice of uh, children and young people in Northern Ireland. So um, I'm delighted that we've been able to do that. Members content to endorse that forward work program? Agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Thank you. Okay, members, any other business? No. No? Okay. Then uh, the date and time for our next meeting is Wednesday, the 9th of June. Do we have any informal meetings next Tuesday, Clark? We do. I'll remind everyone about that, actually, Chair. Yeah, we've okay. got one every Tuesday from now on. Okay. And who's next Tuesday with? Um. I don't have it in front of me. No, no problem. You can remind us of the informal meeting as well. That'd be great. If I can remind members as well, we've run slightly over time. We'll be a bit late for it, but obviously there is the further education event happening now between one and two that members might want, want to, to log into online to support. Uh, thanks very much for all your efforts today, members. Uh, the committee meeting does not adjourn. Thank you. Thanks. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30.